Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. Ponder the error of your ways. And you may not talk. You will not move from these seats. And you will not sleep. Welcome to Now Playing's 1000th Movie Review, discussing The Breakfast Club. I don't want to get into this with you, man. Why not? Because I'd kill you. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. What about you? Fuck you! No, Dad! What about you? Fuck you! Listener discretion is advised. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. Today we're talking about The Breakfast Club, now playing's 1,000th movie review. Starring Emilio Estevez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, Ali Sheedy, directed by John Hughes. This is The Princess, Brock. With me today is The Brain. Also known as Stuart, formerly from L.A. The Athlete. Hey guys, this is Jerry. Two hits, I hit you, you hit the podcast. The Basket Case. Hey guys, this is Marjorie. The Criminal. Hey everybody, this is Justin. The Hacker. Can you hear this? Do you want me to turn it up? This is Arnie. And The Punk. Yes, this is the one and only who always shows Dick some respect, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should hope so. 1,000 shows, gentlemen and lady. 1,000 shows. Consider it this way. When you started this, I think, what, Spider-Man 3? Like, if at the same time you had put a kid in kindergarten, we would all be taking pictures and watching them graduate from high school right now. From their house. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the backyard. Yeah, I do think we have some listeners that have actually taken that journey from, like, maybe listening to us a little too young in their early teens, and now they're, like, in college or, or growing up and adults or whatever. It's crazy. I feel old when I get the emails. I was listening to you in sixth grade. Now I work at Caterpillar. (laughs) (laughs) And I do feel like the proud parent that's crying and snapping pictures of everything. Like I'm I'm getting sentimental about all our most insignificant podcasts. Like, remember when we did The Spirit? First it was a TV movie no one saw. And then it was a real movie that nobody saw. And we did them both. (laughs) I feel you. I understand that too. And it's an interesting time to reflect and... Then it's a great time for all seven of us to get together for the very first time to review The Breakfast Club. Yeah, why this for our 1,000 review? I think, one, John Hughes is just a touchstone that we only touched on once, a Ferris Bueller show. But other than that, I mean, beloved movie from the 80s that's kind of in our wheelhouse. And yeah, we're all kind of in quarantine. We're all kind of locked down. We're all being brought together to explain who we are and why we're still doing this show 1,000 episodes in. Wait, does that mean it's incumbent on me to provide the weed? (laughs) Yes, indeed it is. But isn't it legal where you live? (laughs) Nope, one state over, though. It's legal out here in California, so if you all want to come take a trip... You should see my dance moves on the railing. I taught him everything he knows. (laughs) So, John Hughes, let's kind of go around and talk. How much do you guys know or worship John Hughes? (laughs) 
you know, this is uh, the touchstone. This is the big one of one of John Hughes. But it's not my favorite John Hughes movie. Uh, when I think of John Hughes, I think Ferris Bueller first. I think Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I liked Weird Science more. Uh, I watched that one many more times as a young guy. But during this time, there were a lot of other teen movies that weren't necessarily John Hughes's that I kind of gravitated more towards, like Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, The Short Thing. I was a John Cusack fan who wasn't very much in the Brat Pack. He was kind of on the side of it, I guess. Those were my teen movies more than John Hughes's, but of course I'd seen all of them. But for me, John Hughes, I preferred his his funnier stuff to his more dramatic stuff. And Breakfast Club is one of those movies that I've visited a lot more than I realized when rewatching it because I didn't realize how much I remembered it. But most of the time I've seen this movie, it was really um, on television when it was edited. So I've only really seen this movie unedited two, three times tops. Funny you mentioned John Cusack. He was actually almost cast as Bender until Judd Nelson showed up. Well, there you go. That would be an interesting take of that character, I think. Indeed. He borrowed the coat for say anything, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) He did. (laughs) (laughs) What if you found out that they were all just John Cusack and it was an identity situation? (laughs) (laughs) I'll take up an opposite tack. I liked Ferris. That was the one I adored. I was the right age, sixth grade. But these were a little old for me. I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, these coming out. I never even saw 16 Candles. Weird Science, I'm not sure I saw it start to finish. This movie I remember mostly because it was my brother's first date. And we embarrassingly, the next morning, like, burst into his bedroom and, like, woke him up and, like, how is the movie? How is the date? And he was, you know, it couldn't have been that great because he was there in the bed alone. But he (laughs) said that, yeah, it was the best movie ever made. And so when it came to cable, I made a point of trying to see The Breakfast Club and probably haven't seen this movie since the early 90s. It's been at least 20 years. I have fond memories of this movie when the song came out, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. When that song was like just getting popularity, I was babysitting this girl named Lexi and we listened to this song. I watched it on MTV, I guess, over and over. We taped it. We had it on cassette. We wanted it on video because it was such a good song. And then the movie, I picked The Basket Case because... I hated people like Claire. So this movie like really was kind of... Allison. Yeah. And they hated me. And this movie really was just kind of like my experiences growing up. And it was a really good movie. And I have fond memories of that. And especially listening to the song over and over again. You know, for me, when this movie came on TV, it was a big deal. Now, we weren't going to movies, theaters a lot. My parents certainly wouldn't have taken me to this. And I think I was seventh, eighth grade by the time they started playing this on TV. And it was a big deal. It wasn't just like the local station was just running it one night. This was like some world broadcast premiere. And it got played multiple times. So the local station that eventually became the Fox affiliate here in Cincinnati played it multiple times where I live. I could easily pick up the Dayton station. So on television in 87, 88, whenever they released this, I must have watched this movie eight or nine times. And this viewing for this show is the first time, Brock, I think you referenced it. This is the first time I've watched it unedited. Yeah. But I watched it enough in 1988 to clearly pick out what was changed Things that I thought were edits that weren't. You know, sometimes you hear somebody use a not-so-cursing curse word. You're like, oh, that, that must have been some sort of edit. Now there are times that, oh, wow, that was actually the line. Marjorie, like you, I saw the video which uh, on MTV, which had like a quarter of the movie in it, seemingly. And so, I was, so I had it in high regard. And when it came on TV, man, I was there. I wanted to watch it. And I enjoyed it each time. But then, oddly enough, went 
30 some odd years and didn't watch it at all. Hey, Jerry, did you ever figure out, though, that they were going to his locker for pot? Because I had no idea what the hell they were doing for years. Years and years. And it's, it's so unclear in the television edit. Oh, no, no. I think that was pretty clear. But clearly you don't get the scene where they're getting high. They took that scene, as far as I can remember, completely out. You know, showing teenagers doing marijuana on television in the late 80s just wouldn't have happened. So Unschool property. The whole thing with Andrew with the door shattering, that's not even in the, that cut. You don't even see that. And like you, Jerry, I mostly watched this on TV. Like, that's how I got to know it. I never saw, look, an R-rated film. I didn't realize this was even R-rated until I sat down to watch it this time. Probably the last time I watched a, like, movie unedited for television, maybe 15 years ago. But it was on TV all the time. Same like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like, those were on. I kind of just sit down and watch whatever is going on from that point. So at some point, I could piece the whole movie together, even though I didn't see it in order. I do feel like John Hughes, for our generation, like, he He's a big director, but I've just, I've never been that hot on him. Like, I love Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Weird Science. You know, Ferris is all right. We'll talk about Breakfast Club. Some kind of wonderful I really enjoy. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that one, but maybe we'll talk about his career. I, I think he had a bad second half in the 90s when he started doing, like, Baby's Day Out and Home Alone 3. And so that's why I never gravitated to him. But I think if you saw him at the right age, this stuff would be revolutionary, like you were talking about with your brother, Stuart. I think I came to him a little bit later. For me, I mean, I feel like Breakfast Club has always just kind of been around. I mean, it came out at a time when, you know, I was probably fifth or sixth grade. And I didn't see it in the theater, but like as soon as it hit cable, I'm sure we were watching it all the time. I mean, I feel like I've watched it all through my middle school years, like looking at these kids as the example of what high school was going to be like. And then probably watched it a few times in high school being like, yeah, that was not really that far off the mark. And then, you know, later on in life. But with John Hughes, I don't think I ever paid attention to who writer directors were when I was that young. So I probably didn't put it together that he had a pretty cool filmography until later in life when I found out like, yeah, he did, you know, Home Alone and the later Home Alone and Baby's Day Out, like, like Jacob mentioned. So yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I like a lot of his work. I love Ferris Bueller. I love 16 Candles, Weird Science, all that stuff. It's just always been around. So I would say, I guess I'm a John Hughes mid-80s fan. And me, I think the first film I saw of John Hughes was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I saw that in theaters. And then I probably followed that up with She's Having a Baby because I wow. was a fan of Kevin Bacon and I just would watch anything he was in. I did not realize that was a John Hughes film. Yeah, Ferris Bueller cameos. And then Weird Science, I'm sure I saw somewhere in there too. This movie... I told this story during the The Last Dragon podcast. Now, how does The Last Dragon and The Breakfast Club relate? It's going to be amazing. In case you didn't hear that podcast, because it was a patron show, I'll quickly recap. There were some kids in my class, I was in sixth grade, who I was friends with like in second grade and then just kind of talked to once in a while at school. They called me up one night and are like, you want to go to a movie with us? And I'm like, sure, I got nothing else going on. I was excited to be included in, in their clique for the night. It was really weird, though. And they say, we're going to go see The Last Dragon. So we go to the theater. And once we get there, they're all like, we want tickets to The Breakfast Club. And I'm like, we do? But that movie's rated R. I can't see a rated R movie, guys. What are, what are you doing? And they wouldn't sell us the tickets to the Breakfast Club. And so we went and saw The Last Dragon. And I didn't ever return to the Breakfast Club 
I rewatched the trailer for this before this review. That trailer sucked. There is nothing in that trailer that would make me then or now want to see this film. I saw the video on MTV a ton. I liked the song, but that trailer was really, really awful. But in the late 80s, around the time of Young Guns, I was dating a girl who was really into Young Guns, and so I grabbed my Leonard Malton movie guide and looked up every Emilio Estevez movie ever and started renting them at the video store, and this was one of them. And as a high school sophomore, this film spoke to my soul. It really impacted me, and the number of times I've seen it since, I can't even begin to count. But I realized, I don't know when the last time I paid full attention and watched it was, because watching it for this review, now playing glasses on, as I always say, I didn't realize many things about this film. Yeah, and I want to back up something Justin said that I really, even though I didn't watch this movie a lot, I do think it set the stage for how I thought high school was going to be. As a person that still had a few years till I got there, I mean, I was just like, oh, this is a corrupt institution. I want no part of it. I mean, I think I went in with a negative attitude because I believed that it did this to kids. I think this movie taught me to be wary of the high school institution. It definitely set the idea of clicks being a thing in, into a young mind. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Like, what click were you in in high school? Like, we all had our little introductions here, but I don't think it's that clear cut. Like, I think back on high school. Yeah, I'm the punk. There was, like, three punks until, like, Green Day broke out. But, like, <laughs> there were, like, three punks. So, like, we hung out. There was the goths. They, we kind of hung out with them. I hung out with what well, would probably be called the hacker. Like, this one guy, he just liked punk music, but he was kind of a geeky computer guy, but he come to all our shows and whenever there was an electrical problem the PA wasn't working he'd be back there fixing it it was great and you know the jocks I didn't like the football players but basketball players and the baseball player like they weren't just all the jocks there's all these subcategories it gets very complicated as I think back about high school I think these types of the kids they have here, there are only five of them, kind of like when you have Inside Out, right? They only have five emotions, but there's so many more emotions, right? So these are representations of ones that we all know. My whole school, as Marjorie referenced earlier, a lot of girls in my school, a lot of boys in my school were princesses. I know these people. I know them very well. The jocks. I know those guys really well. There's burnouts. They're not, not really necessarily represented in this movie. Yeah, they're the stoners. Yeah. You know, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of other angles, right? So what group was I in? None of these five, I can tell you that. Is there, is there a theater click? Is that something that's possible? Yeah, no, the drama kid. Yeah. You know, like, I did my own thing. And it's one of those things that I desperately wanted to be included and desperately wanted them to like me. But at the same time, I didn't like them. It was really, really strange. Like you didn't like the other drama kids? Not with drama kids, you know, that's where I belonged, but I'm talking about like the princesses and the jocks and the other kids, you know, I wanted them to leave me alone, but at the same time I wanted them to like me even though I didn't like them, and it was really one of those weird dichotomies in high school. But what I like about this movie is that even though they're all different, you know, and we'll talk about it, we're all the same in different ways. But clearly it's how you deal with stuff and who you are and to only have to say there's five, it's impossible. I think Jacob makes a good point. There's so many different kinds of different areas that you fall into. And it's like, this is a school in the Midwest. I don't know if these types would be exactly the same if you went to the coast or something. And they're all white. Do you guys have modern art in your libraries in the Midwest? I could not believe this library. (laughs) Do you have a balcony in your library? Because I didn't have a balcony in my library. That was a fancy library. I mean, our school library was a room. I don't know if my college library was that nice. This was filmed in a real high school, a closed-down high school, the same one where they filmed Ferris Bueller, but the library wasn't big enough, so they took the gymnasium and built this library in it. Oh. Now, you asked about the coast. 
Well, when I started high school, I was living in Florida. And yes, there were a million clicks, but I was definitely the Brian down there. I mean, who did I hang out with the most? Well, I was the computer programmer for the yearbook, and I hung out with a bunch of Trekkies, and we did like Star Trek role-playing games and stuff like that. But then I transferred, I moved to Illinois, and went to a Catholic school and had a bit of a rough transition there and turned into the Allison. I was clearly carrying way too much in my bag, didn't talk to anybody, hid in the library during lunch hours. And then by the time senior year rolled around, I was typeless. I was like hanging out with everybody. I finally had just made friends with everybody, but it took me a while to get there. And see, Stuart and I went to the same high school. Oh, dish, dish. Tell us all his secrets, Marjorie. <laughs> you were a year behind me, right, Stuart? I don't remember you there. I know I don't remember you there either. <laughs> well, I'll tell you where I was. I was standing out front by the tree. Uh, my whole thing was, if I identify with anyone, it's probably Bender because I joined no clubs. I did no extracurriculars. I went to a rival high school's prom. Oh, my. You know, like, all my friends were at my job. I did not want to participate in high school. And again, I think this movie helped form that idea that, like, don't mess with it. Just put your head to the grindstone and wait until you can get to college because that's when you can actually be a real person i know it's tree you're talking about too and there's always that kid that hangs out by the tree by themselves at lunch you told me one of my friends that i hung out with went to jail like i was stunned by that one yeah we went to the same high school and i didn't put up with crap but i also ended up not being friends with a lot of these popular people because i thought that they were pretty crappy people they were stuck up. You know, they were all the kids that were in the D.A.R.E. programs, but then were out doing coke and heroin and stuff like that in the parking lots after school. So, Man, they do some hard drugs in high school in the Midwest. <laughs> we got some serious <laughs> drugs. You have no idea. I ended up hanging out with all the other misfits. One of the guys I hung out with had giant mohawk. Well, my husband has a mohawk now. I hung around the skaters because everyone was making fun of the skaters. So it was like this big group of people who kind of didn't fit in with anybody. And Yeah, so we would have been friends, Marjorie. That's what it said. Because that was my group. It's just all the misfits come together. There's not enough of us to be one click. We'll be a union of clicks. Yeah, it was just like we didn't fit anywhere else. So we all fit kind of together. But I hated high school and I never want to go back. No. <laughs> I was kind of a floater. When my first day of school, I, I carpooled with a senior and she gave me a piece of good advice. She's like, hey, high school goes by in a flash. She's like, don't worry about trying to join in with everybody and don't try to like be anything to everybody. And like, it just kind of stuck with me. So like, I mean, I played sports, but I didn't hang out with the jocks. And, you know, I, I smoked weed, but I wasn't a burner, you know, and I had friends in bands and that wasn't necessarily a dropout or anything. So like I could hang out with anybody, but I mean... That's my perception. If you had asked somebody I went to high school with, I don't know, maybe I was the nerd. I don't know. Maybe I was a Brian. Maybe I'm self-inflating my own thing. But I mean, if I had to pick something, I would say I was alternative. But that's not a category in this movie. This movie's really relatively short, just slightly over an hour and a half. So they obviously need to pick five very recognizable types to tell their story, their movie with. But if I think about like, hey, are these the five clicks that were in high school? I mean, I don't know about you guys. My high school had 600 people. So for me, you know, if I had three or four good friends throughout high school, I was doing pretty good. And it's probably some mixture really of, 
hey, I was focused on getting good grades, wanted to just, you know, make sure everything was happy with that. As long as I was getting good grades, my parents were, you know, okay with me as a person. Okay, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> How's that lamp coming along there? Uh, well, that's what I just said. It was kind of the brain thing there. It's like, yeah, I focused on being good at school and wanted to go to college, do all that good stuff, but ne- never on the competitive, hard on yourself. I see Allison, even though the describe her as a basket case, I see Allison as being that one who does her own thing, and I guess she really doesn't necessarily have friends, but, you know, me and my friends, I don't know how we would categorize this. I mean, I, I hung out a lot with my uh, church group and we didn't get in trouble. We were good kids. You know, we went to church. That was our focus was serving God in our lives, you know, especially from my sophomore year to my senior year. That that was my focus. And by the way, I have a brother who's five years older, so I saw him go through high school. So I'm watching this movie thinking, even as a 14-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever, watch this movie, I'm like, man, this movie is so definitive of you're one of these five characters. And I just kind of knew, hey, it's just a movie. It doesn't mean anything thing. So I never really felt like I related to one of these characters in so much I was just entertained by their dynamics. I actually had a breakfast club moment in high school with about five or six of us were together getting a ride home. This is before Ubers and things, you know. So a bunch of us would get together on a Friday night or Saturday night, kind of like a community service thing, a bunch of teenagers, and we would give kids ride home. Our friends from school or people we know in school would call us to get a safe ride home instead of driving drunk. And so there's like five or six of us and there's a student council president. There was me, there was uh, a jock. And so we sat there, you know, for four hours in the basement of the church with a walkie-talkie because we had a walkie-talkie in the car and waiting for people to phone the ring and call us and get rides. And the six of us were sitting there talking and there was a faculty person there and we ended up talking about real stuff and real things. And it was one of those things that, yeah, in the next morning at school, we, you know, we weren't friends, but we always acknowledged each other. We always, we shared something together. We had a shared experience. So when I see this movie, I always thought of that night is that there were people and, and, it happens when you're in theater. It happens when you're in athletics. You are on a team with people and you respect each other because you're on that team. And you may not be friends like friend friends, but you have this bond. And I remember we talked about it that night, too. It's kind of like the Breakfast Club. It was kind of cool that we all had that shared experience. So I'm not sure if any of you had anything like that in high school, but it was a wonderful night. Let me shock everybody. My senior year, I went on a religious retreat with a bunch of other students who I didn't know very well. And it was a two-day thing. And when I was watching The Breakfast Club this time, it reminded me of that because you were in this very intense, isolated scenario for two days. And people who I'd hated were there and people who I sort of knew were there. And This is, I think, what people have with the summer camp kind of thing. Like, there were weird conversations at night, like breakfast clubby conversations where somebody was confessing to me about how their father beat them up and all these really serious, deep confessionals going on. And then at the end of it, after two days, yeah, we didn't talk to each other in the halls or anything, no. Right. So, Jerry, if you were the good kid, I take it you never had to do a Saturday detention? (laughs) No, golly, no. I I had detention one time in high school, and it was just an after-school one. I guess we had a Saturday detention, but I don't, you know, that really, wasn't something that you heard a lot of people having that, but I guess it was there, but uh, but no, I, I got detention one time. Is it actually a thing, Arnie? Yeah, it was at my Florida school. Yeah, in California, they would call it Saturday school, and you basically had to, like, walk around and clean up trash. It was like a full day. You had to really screw up bad to get Saturday school. Yeah, either as after-school detention. I got a lunch detention one time. It was like, yeah, coming at lunch and sit in the class and do whatever, and, and there's your detention. I don't even remember what I did, but yeah, Saturday school, that was for the really bad kids. 
So am I the only one who perhaps had all day detention out of this group? I didn't even know we had it at our high school. Really? They did this? It was called in-house. Nah. You would go sit in the little room all day and you'd have to take your homework there. And you were like literally in a cubicle about as wide as the chair. You weren't allowed to talk to anybody. You couldn't look at anybody. And you had to stay there all day. You had to eat lunch in that room and everything. Yeah, but that was during the regular school week, right? It was during the regular school. We did not have Saturday detention at our school. Yeah, we did have something like that too. And again, you had to be really bad to get that. Isn't that called an in-school suspension? Yeah, that's what we called it. All I did was skip school a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem is you got caught. Nobody wants to come in. Like, now we can identify with the teachers. And then, like, of course you don't want to come in on a Saturday. I am so much more sympathetic, yeah, with Vernon in this film now. (laughs) Yeah, but why on earth would he give Bender two months of detention if he has to come in for two more months on Saturday. Come on, isn't he? Have a, isn't his wife going to be mad he has to go to school all day on a Saturday? You see that suit? He's not worried about his wife. He, he wants to hit that dance floor. When else is he going to look at all the other teachers' personal files? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, though. How many of you guys assumed that Werner has a wife? I always assumed that he was kind of a, somewhat of a bachelor, kind of a playboy with that Barry Manilow wardrobe. <laughs> I was paying attention to that this time, and he is not wearing a wedding ring. So I think they're just saying he's a failure in every sector of his life. How do you stay single when you're making 31000 a year? Like, the, <laughs> the women are just dripping, hanging on you. I did look that up. That's about seventy now. No, I know. Like, that, that was actually not a bad <laughs> salary. It's funny saying it now, though, because, yeah, that's poverty. Yeah, I... Only did detention a couple of times. I actually did have a breakfast club where people who had jobs after school had to come in an hour early for detention, and I had a whole week of that. Ouch, yeah. I don't think we ever had Saturday detention, but I I spent quite a few hours in after-school detentions for whatever infractions. I don't remember what I did to get them, but I remember sitting in that room. Well, Arnie, we could probably talk about our high school years all day long, but we got a movie to cover. Give us the plot of Breakfast Club, and we can jump on in. On a March Saturday in 1984 in Shermer, Illinois, five students show up at their high school for an all-day Saturday detention. The five students are all specific types. We have the jock, or they call him sport in this movie, Andy, played by Emilio Estevez. Then there's the nerd, or brain, Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall. There's the rich Princess Claire, played by Molly Ringwald. Rebellious, they call him criminal. Bender is played by Judd Nelson. And finally, we have outcast basket case Allison, played by Ali Sheedy. During their confinement, they're overseen by Vice Principal Vernon, played by Paul Gleason, who instructs the five teens to spend the day writing a paper saying who they think they are. With the five students coming from different social groups, there's friction, mostly instigated by Bender. But the group comes together to protect each other from the wrath of Vernon, and as the day goes on, each of the students start to connect and see... They really aren't so different after all. All have troubles with their parents, and all are insecure in their high school roles. When the day ends, the students all said that they wouldn't really be comfortable being friends on a normal day, but Andy kisses Allison goodbye, and Claire kisses Bender, who harassed her most of the day, as credits roll to Don't You Forget About Me. Yeah, I guess we can start there. It was all over MTV. I knew the video probably a full year before I ever rented The Breakfast Club. I was never that big on it. Even now, it's overplayed. Like, if it comes on the radio, I'm turning that dial. Simple Minds didn't even want to do it, and they were like the fourth band they approached with this. 
Billy Idol said no, and Simple Minds finally recorded it, and then they did forget about it until the movie came out a while later, and then all of a sudden they had a number one hit. Billy Idol makes so much sense. I mean, it it even kind of sounds like Eyes Without a Face. And his image, that whole idea of Rebel Yell, the Rebel, like, he should have done it. He ended up covering it for a Greatest Hits album like a decade later. Ouch. It would have been too much to pay the royalties to, to get the rights to use changes by David Bowie, since that's the quote they use anyway? Well, they had to pay quite a bit just to use that quote. And if you look at John Hughes' films overall, I really do credit him for introducing me to a style of music I wouldn't normally have heard. I mean, I wouldn't have heard Yellow, I wouldn't have heard, a lot of the songs on most of his soundtracks were more new wavy type stuff, some OMD and things that weren't played on MTV or on my local Top 40 radio station, and so I think he picked the style of music he really wanted. He loved making mixtapes for his friends, and I think he made mixtapes for his movies, too. He even started a record label. He he launched Flesh for Lulu, who gained fame from some kind of wonderful and pretty in pink. Music is a big part of all his... I don't think there is a single movie of his, at least from the 80s, that didn't have an identifiable song. And boy, this song was identifiable, but I probably liked... Uh, Pretty and Pink more. It's no weird science. Yeah, right. Now, you know, this movie did take a little while to get going. We talked about our familiarity with John Hughes, but this guy didn't get into film until he was pretty late in life. He was an ad copywriter until his late 20s, and he didn't really like it. He got in with the National Lampoon Group and ended up writing Mr. Mom and Vacation, and he after writing a couple things, wanted to direct something on his own. So he thought, all right, what are they going to give a first-time director? Let me find a movie that doesn't have too many people, that has one location, and is just really confined. You know, kind of like Reservoir Dogs to a degree. You know, it's mostly in that warehouse that a lot of low-budget films are set in single locations. So he wrote this film to be his first film, And he was even casting it. He was talking with various people, including Molly Ringwald. And then a studio had bought a script of his called 16 Candles, and he demanded he direct it. So he actually put Breakfast Club on hold, went and did 16 Candles with Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald, and then came back to do this as his second film. He was famous for writing very quickly like there's a story about almost every one of the scripts like how it was knocked out in like a matter of days the first draft of this was done in a weekend the first cut of this movie was two and a half hours long i got the criterion edition blu-ray that had the missing 50 minutes and i got to see all of that oh wow do they get to eat breakfast in any of those cut scenes <laughs> no i did look that up because i was told at the time i remember asking what is a breakfast club and i was told that's what you call people who have saturday detention but i'd never heard that again i looked it up apparently you know john hughes did grow up in a suburb of Chicago, which is what Shermer is. Like all his movies, yeah. There is no town called Shermer, but if you look at the zip code, it's Northbrook, which is a pretty affluent Chicago suburb up there. And apparently, one of his friends did have a Saturday detention, and they just called it The Breakfast Club. This film was almost called The Lunch Bunch, and I have a (laughs) feeling it would not have taken off. (laughs) We see them eat lunch, though. It's more accurate. (laughs) 
But that sounds like something on Electric Company. Join the Lunch Bunch. Yeah, that's a Disney Channel original movie version. Right after Banana Splits. But you know, another thing about Hughes, and it's, again, we've mentioned all of these movies from the 80s. He has his name on screenplays a lot, but this is kind of rare for him to have a drama. If you look at most of the movies that he actually directed, they're Laugh Fest, they're Lampoon, 16 Candles. Again, I watched it for the first time this week, but I was surprised at how much of it is a absurd kind of slapstick humor. And of course, Weird Science... The drama ones are the ones I think about. Breakfast Club, Some Kind of Wonderful, Pretty in Pink. But really, his calling is more like the Home Alone stuff. What's funny is, you know, every once in a while we discuss doing a John Hughes series. And we discuss, all right, well, we're not going to do Curly Sue. That is the one <laughs> film of his I've still avoided. I've never even seen that. Peters. <laughs> oh, oh, my. It wasn't my choice. I mean. <laughs> but what is a shock to a lot of people is while he wrote Pretty in Pink, and that is probably Pretty in Pink or Breakfast Club are in a neck and neck for which is the most Hughesy film, but he didn't direct Pretty in Pink or its quick remake, Some Kind of Wonderful. Those were Howard Deutsch films. Right. Yeah. And again, they're the dramas. I think I liked them more because they were angsty and they felt real and I just didn't watch as much of the comedies. Yeah, I agree. When I think of his comedies, I really like most of them. Uncle Buck? Oh, I forget about Uncle Buck. It's kind of a dark horse. Oh, yeah. Great film. Yeah. I saw Dutch and I didn't like it. I actually did like Dutch. That one was kind of heartwarming and I thought I'd hate it, but it's okay. Yeah, I saw it when it was in theaters. I don't remember, you know, it was fine as a kid. But keep in mind, again, this was a script he wrote after writing a few comedies that he was trying to direct for himself and... What I hear is he was kind of a regressed person himself. Like, he was able to write teens really well, because even though he was married and even had a kid, he still acted like a teenager. When this film was made, both Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall were 16. Everybody else was in their 20s. And the 20-year-olds would go off and do their thing, and Hughes would take Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald to movies and concerts, and the three of them would hang out at the mall. That's not creepy at all. (laughs) So I think he could really tap into teenagers in a way that a lot of people didn't at the time. And if you look at the teenage films that were coming out around this time, they were mostly Porky's ripoffs. I mean, we had Revenge of the Nerds, which was Porky's with glasses. and Not only that, but they tended to be about the 50s in some way, or going back to the 50s. Like, this was edgy. I think the reason why my brother loved it was it felt like he was seeing his high school in that day right there up on the movie screen, and that was profound. Kids didn't have movies that got real. Like, this is an R-rated movie, I believe. It is, and what's shocking just absolutely shocking, is 16 Candles, which says the F word and has some nudity, is PG. And this film, with no nudity, no violence, it's got the sticky weed in it. It's got marijuana. That's really bad in Reagan's 80s. That's probably the reason. Yeah, it probably was. And a lot of F-bombs too, right? There's a whole bunch of F-bombs. I didn't notice. And it might just be, I mean, there is sex talk. It's not salacious, but, you know, it's something I didn't want my younger girls to see. Yeah, but for what was offered teenagers at that time, keep in mind, we didn't have the internet and everything. Like, yeah, I think that it was probably quite profound to see your high school in an R-rated movie. My brother, I think, he was 16 when he saw it, so they let him in. He was R-rated, too young for it, but I think the movie theater wanted to make money. They were like, okay, you count. 
It was one of the top grossing R-rated films of all time when it came out. I mean, it made 52 million. People, you know, think that's a bad opening weekend now. But back then, R-rated movies making 52 million, especially when they only cost 1 million to make. And especially when their target is teenagers who can't maybe get into it. So going through the plot here, we start, we just see all these kids dropped off at school. It's a very quick introduction, and we get very brief glimpses of some of their parents. The only time we'll see anybody but the main seven. Yeah, you you say it's a quick little scene. I think it's very telling how each of these characters are dropped off or not dropped off in the case of one of them. That little glimpse into... Why they are how they are was kind of nice if you watch it again. You know, the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, okay, parents being jerks, whatever. But I mean, with Anthony Michael Hall's mom, and that was his real mom, stressing. Use this time to study. I love the little girl who was really Anthony Michael Hall's sister. Like, (laughs) yeah, mister. But what this beginning does, and it's something you don't appreciate, especially I didn't, and, you know, as a fifth, sixth grader, is how they're setting up the class differences between these people just with the shots of the cars. You know, we have a BMW, we have a nice mid-class sedan, we have a jock dad driving a Bronco 2. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really setting up this class structure just visually right off the top. And I love that Brian's mom's license plate is EMC squared. I did notice that this time. And yeah, the way Allison is dropped off and just gets out of the car, the parents speed away. They don't even wait. She's in the backseat. At least they gave her a ride, though. Yeah, Bender's got to walk to Saturday school detention, whatever we're calling it here, the breakfast club. That's very trusting that, like, Bender's going to just walk. I guess his parents don't care. We'll find out. And I feel like if there was one spinoff, like if you were going to make a continuing adventures of just one of these characters, it would be Bender, right? Like, he is the most combative, the most interesting, the underdog, as it were. I mean, the whole school administration... at least judging by this vice principal here, they have it out for him. What I realized watching it this time is if Bender hadn't been there, this would have been the most boring Saturday ever. Hey, we would have got to hear four essays that would have all been written individually. (laughs) That's all that would have happened. Yes, they wouldn't have talked to each other. They wouldn't have done anything. They probably would have all fallen asleep. But like most detentions... The other four were all content to just sit there and draw or scribble or pretend to be a walrus by putting the pen on your lip, and who hasn't done that? It's Bender who starts by closing the door. It's almost like Bender is the Ferris Bueller of this group. Like he, It feels like he almost had a plan that day by closing the door, because I gotta figure he's in there every Saturday, and he can't turn every Saturday into group therapy. <laughs> Well, I mean, he's the persuasive anarchist, right? I mean, everybody else is happy to stay in their lane and just do as they're told, but he's the one who's going to come in here and do as he pleases. He was a very good instigator and knew how to push every single person's buttons. And Judd Nelson, I think, did a good job at that. Now, that's because Judd Nelson went method. Apparently, he abused all of them off camera, too, especially Molly Ringwald because he was most antagonistic to Claire and John Hughes almost fired him. And they said that John Hughes was to Judd Nelson, like Vernon is to Bender. And the other cast members had to all go to Hughes and be like, don't fire him. We don't mind being abused by him. He's really good for the movie. And part of the reason we never got a sequel is Hughes ended and like, I'm never working with that son of a bitch again. 
Oh, that's interesting because if that's the case, if those were the dynamics on the set, we think of these characters being these actors. Did they get a chance to improvise? Is any of this them just doing a riff and seeing how it goes? They were all extraordinarily involved. And one thing about Hughes is he liked letting his actors create the characters. He was not precious with his words. And when he hired all of them, he had the first draft of the script. When they started doing table reads, he was on the fourth draft of the script. And like the whole cast was like, this isn't the film we signed on to. There was a scene where Brian and Andrew and Bender all go because the swim team is there and they spy on the female teacher stripping in the locker room. Oh, weird. I mean, there was a lot of weird stuff going on in the script. And they're like, can we see the earlier drafts? And each of the actors picked their favorite bits from all four drafts and compiled the script. Okay. And Hughes was happy to let them do it. And then they did a lot of improvising on the time. And sometimes he'd go with what they improvised. And sometimes they wouldn't. Like, the entire joke while Bender is crawling through the ceiling, that is Judd Nelson. It just said in the script he crawls through the ceiling. And he's like, I need to be doing something in the ceiling. I need to be talking something. And he just came up with that. Yeah, I'll say for this whole cast, maybe Emilio, he feels a little stiff. Maybe that's his character. But I felt like, especially Anthony Michael Hall, like, you got these really good, almost natural performances where you could tell they felt very comfortable with their characters. Like you said, Arnie, Hughes might have not have like Judd Nelson after this movie, but you know, on some of the interviews I've watched when they're on the press junket, Judd Nelson was saying he gave him the freedom to fail. He was really talking him up and he really liked the process of making this movie because they did have so much room to improvise while making this movie. Yeah, what's funny is on the Criterion edition, there's a Today Show interview with Jane Pauley from 1985, and it was Judd Nelson and Molly Ringwald, and Jane Pauley was asking him, like, Judd Nelson, you're a prep school kid from the Northeast. How did you find this character? And Judd just said something offhand, like, I might not have been the greatest person to work with. And Molly Ringwald cracked the hell up. And now that I know all the behind the scenes stories, I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) he admits what he did might not have been the greatest. It may not have been the greatest to deal with, but I think what's up on screen, all of that tension that he creates, it sounds like on and and off camera, it comes through. And I think there's something genuine about it that what would this movie be without Bender? You really have to have this character. I also want to say, it sounds like they had some thoughts about bringing in other characters, other teachers or swim teams or whatever. I really love the fact that these people step out of their lives and their cars and their families, and we leave all of that behind. They step into a void. Detention is really where they're going to strip away all the artifice about high school, and it's just them relating to one another. That's really what it's got to be. You don't want to bring in too many other characters. Yeah, and what a great device. You know, eight hours as an adult kind of goes by a little faster, but being in high school, eight hours sitting in the same room, being able to do nothing, that is truly punishment at that age. And nowadays, would they take their phones away during detention? Oh, I I was trying to reimagine this, yeah, in modern times. First, they'd have to go through the metal detector, check for any flare guns or other weapons, and (laughs) yeah, phones, all of that. Turn the Wi-Fi off in the library. Yeah, I have a feeling Vernon's rigid swimsuit calendar would not (laughs) fly these days. None of his behavior would fly. I think even, (laughs) at least in California, back in 1985, it wouldn't fly. Yeah, I mean, Vernon is villainous because of the way he speaks to Bender. I mean, Bender, no doubt earned his detention we never find out exactly what he did he pulled a fire alarm 
Yeah, that's it. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Okay, but he's always lighting cigarettes from his shoes, and like you can just tell he's a problem all day long, every day. But really, I think, yeah, for this teacher, the threat is you don't fit in here economically. You don't bring anything. You're a poor kid. Because of that, I think of you as, essentially, he assigns him, what, five years until he's going to jail? I don't know if it's a class thing. What we're going to find out, you know, Vernon, the assistant principal there, is going to get really raw at a certain point with Carl the janitor and talk about how he used to like being a teacher and the kids turned on him. And I think the thing with Bender isn't that he's poor, it's that he is the most questioning and openly hostile and undermining Vernon's authority. Okay, but wait a second. You have to look at the life at home he describes. Yeah. Which would produce the person who is distrusting of authority, acts out because he's not getting attention at home. So you have to kind of take that hand in hand. I know you grew up on the different side of the tracks than I did, Arnie. So you were exposed to things differently, and this kind of thing is not something you saw. Yeah, I definitely want to back up the idea that there was a hard line when it came to money. And like those kids didn't participate in the same way. They couldn't pay the money for the fees to join the team and what have you. And so, yeah, you do just get left behind. It wasn't just that. It was baked into the classes, even in high school. I mean, I don't want to downgrade shop because I think a vocational career is a great option for anyone. But you know the kind of people that typically went to auto shop or or metal shop or they were in the lower English remedial. Like they would call it remedial English like you're. Oh, yeah. So there was always a stigma, even if we didn't know what your economic status was. Oh, you take auto shop and you go to remedial English. Okay, I know who you are. I mean, and this movie is on its surface about kids and how they interact, but in a deeper level, it is an indictment of the American public school system, how your class and your opportunities are going to be decided by how much influence your family or money can bring to you. I mean, you can be a rich kid and not try in school and get out of it with more opportunity than a kid without that kind of money. And that's what this movie's looking at. Yeah, and I also feel like, wasn't this a warning sign about the boomers, guys? Isn't this a boomer versus Gen X film? Like, I, I <laughs> guess, you know, we're all uh, pretty far away from high school. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> Not far enough, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. It's, I still got scars. But I kind of relate. Like, it's scary. I, I'm paying more attention to Vernon this time watching it. Because, I, you know, at some point you realize, oh, I can't hang out with, like, the young hip crowd anymore like i'm in my uh you know mid to late 30s and it's weird hanging out with people and they're like you that just kind of gradually happens and i guess you could go bitter but yeah i do think there's this fear of the next generation that changes we're, we're afraid of that you know at one point vernon says to carl when i get old these kids are going to be the ones who take care of me and all i could think of is when do we get to do that, Boomers? Yeah, n- not in 2020, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> when do we get that Gen X presidential runoff? Yeah. I never actually saw Vernon as being, hey, I don't like Bender because he's one of the poor kids. I always took it as Bender is the one person who is not fearful of me, so I need to make an example of him. And, you know, Jacob, I think you're kind of getting into this a little bit, but being that this is the first time I've seen this movie in, what, probably 32 years or whatever, you know, when Vernon had Judd Nelson in the closet, it's probably because I also know in my head Judd Nelson's probably like 25 in this movie or something, you know, the actor, that I'm like, yeah, Vernon, just smack him. He deserves it. He's a punk. But then you're like, 
Oh, no, wait a minute. He's a high schooler. So, no, you can't be fighting. But I had to transport myself back to like, oh, yeah, Bender doesn't have a cell phone. There's no camera. There's no... He could actually close him in this locker, punch him in the gut, not really leave any marks. And who in the world would believe him because of the way Bender acts? So I was a little disappointed in myself how in that moment I was kind of rooting for Vernon a little bit. There was a point when he leaves the library after the whole two-month thing and then he yells, fuck you. Vernon has that look of like almost like regret that the whole thing went down. And I kind of felt for the man there a little bit. But then, of course, later on, he completely negates that with the closet scene. What I wish is that Vernon had an arc because Carl asks him a great question is, what would you think of you when you were 16? If we're going to have Vernon have this ennui during this movie and Carl calls him out, he's like, you took this job because you thought it would be easy and you'd get summers off and now you're just a working stiff and you're taking it out on the kids. I'd like to have had Vernon come to some realization, and I don't know that he ever does. I know that at the end he picks up the essay that Brian writes, and I still don't know that he is a different man at the end of this day than he was at the beginning. I found him sympathetic as well as an adult. I mean, I didn't like teenagers when I was a teenager. Like, I gotta be honest, I always hung out with adults. So now I still feel the same way, but I wish... That if he's going to have these feelings and have this bitterness that Vernon wouldn't be just so one-dimensional villain that he would have some kind of awakening himself on this day. But I like it because I can write my own ending. He has the conversation with Carl. He reads the essay. I kind of fill in the gaps for myself. I don't need the movie to tell me that he's probably had some moments. He'll probably think about it. And maybe by Wednesday, he'll be a prick again. But like I, I kind of fill it in myself. No, I, I agree with you, Arnie. I wanted some, and I expected it watching this time. Again, it's been like 15 years. It's not one that was fresh on my mind. So I knew there was a scene with Carl, the janitor that they had. And I thought, I don't know if necessarily he needs to be redeemed, but some kind of realizations, maybe some kind of revelation, like how he was a bender and, and maybe he feels like a sellout or something like that. Something to understand him more. The way Hughes writes it here, it just feels, oh, he's the villain, that evil adult authority figure that we're going to hate because we're teenagers. And I, I think that works for the key demographic for this movie, teenagers. Maybe they don't want to see the adult change. Like they always want that person to be the villain. But can we give a shout out to the actor Paul Gleason, who is a wonderful villain in this? I mean, he has some of the most iconic lines. If we're going to have a one-dimensional villain, you know, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. This guy just has it head to toe. I loved him in Trading Places, and I think he's great here. Yeah, he is the carryover from Hughes's slapstick leanings. Like, he would also work as one of the burglars in Home Alone. You know, he's just bumbling and buffoonish in that way. And I think this movie does need levity. We do need moments of broad comedy because, yeah, it's going to get heavy. Vernon is not the only one that has a problem with Bender. Everyone has a problem with Bender. We saw Brian being kicked out of his seat because Bender, just his alpha male, is going to threaten him. And, of course, the way he's behaving towards Claire, it's going to make Andrew threaten him. Many times they're at each other's throats about to have a fight. Yeah, Andrew and Claire seem to be the ones who come from the most closely related social circles. Okay, no, this is how it works. Claire obviously is upper class. Andrew gets a buy-in because he's in sports. And that's kind of like, you can be kind of a middle to lower middle class and still fit in with the super preppy kids because you're doing sports. 
Which is tied into money because the sports programs brings the high school. Exactly. You know, you sell the tickets. And I mean, again, it's all commerce there. Yeah. And we get the impression Andrew's family doesn't have a lot of money because his dad said, there's no way you're going to get a scholarship if you're a troublemaker. And so Andrew doesn't have the money to just pay for school. The dad's clearly a working guy in a Bronco. Yeah, they, he's he doesn't fit in there with Claire's family. Yeah, but there's a certain prestige and status that a jock has in high school. Yeah, he, he gets a buy-in. Yeah, that's the trope. The homecoming king is always the football captain, and the queen is always the most popular girl. Though Andy's just a wrestler in this, right? Just a wrestler? He's not just a wrestler. Yeah, but state champion. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if we had a wrestling team at our high school. Yeah, so then you've got Brian and Allison, who are probably firmly middle-middle class to lower-middle class. Like, their parents aren't dead broke. Allison's lower-middle class, I can tell from that car. <laughs> Well, okay, yeah. I assume that was her dad, but yeah. So they're a little bit lower on the spectrum. Allison might get slight buy-in from Brian's group because they're both kind of kicked to the side by the upper-class people and the jocks. I think Brian would be willing to hang out with anyone. He even says so, I think, in the film. Yeah, and then you've got Bender, who's like the burnout guy, or the appearance of a burnout. He did smoke weed, but... Didn't appear to be too bad. But you've got him, and he is definitely from one of the lower class families that probably is at the school because of the way they draw the districts. Doesn't fit in with anybody, and never is going to get a permanent buy-in from Claire or Andrew's group, no matter what happens after this breakfast club. And of course, one of the subtexts of this whole movie is, does high school set the tone for the whole rest of your life? You know, they're going to have that conversation about, are we going to become our parents? Is the politics of now going to carry us on through? I mean, with Bender, the prediction is you're going straight from here to jail. I mean, that is literally said to him. And Andrew makes a point many times of saying, you're nothing here. You have no voice. Well, to Andrew, you're nothing if you don't participate. He's in sports. Claire's in social clubs. Even Brian is in academic clubs. And nobody even knows who Allison is, and she's not talking at this point in the movie. So Bender, he might as well not even exist because he's just a wraith in the hallway. There are some of the popular girls at school who would literally join every single club. So in the yearbook, they would have all the clubs listed under their name that they were on and see how many pictures of themselves they could get in the yearbook. They would join academic clubs, social clubs, you name it. Jeffrey Dahmer actually, in his senior year, went to every club's senior photo. Well, he was grocery shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He wasn't in the clubs, but he'd be there for the yearbook photos, and he's in every club yearbook. That's kind of an awesome troll. (laughs) That's a group missing from this movie. A cannibal. (laughs) Where is the serial killer? That is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Look at the poster. There's a part in this movie that this is actually talked about is when Andrew looks behind to make sure that John doesn't hear about Claire. Are you grounded tonight? Are you going to go to Stubby's party? That's exactly what this is all about is that, you know, Brian wasn't invited, but Brian would love to go. And I bet you if Allison walks in there, no one's even going to know she went. Right. But they certainly don't want Bender to show up because if Bender goes, it's chaos. And so that's exactly what Margie was saying. It was in the movie in a slight little conversation about Stubby's party. They even explore... The reasons why these different characters belong to some of these groups. I mean, with Claire, it's because of popularity. And with Brian, it's because he thinks it could be for popularity. But it is like, you know, like Bender says, it's demented and sad, but social. And with Andrew, it's almost compulsory. You know, it's like if given his own 
druthers, he might not be a wrestler. He might not do any of these things. It seems like he's being forced into those. But Bender really is the driving force here because he does continually harass Claire specifically. It's very uncomfortable, like, where he goes. Molly Ringwald even wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about in the era of Me Too, she's embarrassed to have done John Hughes films, that they're a product of their time. I'm not saying it's not realistic. It's just uncomfortable. I definitely know people. I probably made crude comments like this just for shock value in high school. That's what you do. That's your maturity level. When Bender is leaning over Claire and talking about how far she's gone, and he's like, over the panties, no bra, the look on Molly Ringwald's face, she never backs down. She genuinely creeped out yeah that scene is really uncomfortable to watch for me right now really the way he's saying it is overly familiar you know he's almost using a phone sex kind of voice discussing these acts and it's like it is creepy it is dangerous it feels a little rapey yeah, and other people didn't jump in soon enough. Like, Andrew eventually speaks up, but I was wondering what's taking them so long. She's sitting there, you know, she keeps saying shut up, and no one else comes in till it goes too far a lot of the time. And that would really, this particular one you're talking about certainly did feel uncomfortable. But also, when he was under the table, that's a little more creepy, too. It was funny in a sense, but it was really kind of, why would she even let him go down there even to hide? It doesn't make any, you know, the whole thing. It's just... Well, the reason why is they'd all get in trouble if one person got in trouble. I'm also going to throw it out there. She's attracted to him from the word jump. Oh, yeah. There's a part of her that is deeply shamed about being a virgin. Here's a very sexually confident man that she has a physical attraction to. So there's a part of her that thinks, wow, this would be something. But of course, it's the class system. It's everything that defines who she is that keeps her from really entertaining that idea for too long. This is Judd Nelson's shining moment where he is like exuding hotness throughout this entire movie because he's a bad boy. He's kind of a jerk. So you're attracted to him because of that. And it was his only movie where he was attractive, but all the girls, (laughs) why are you laughing? Just because it's true. Yeah. I mean, he's fucking hot in this movie, right? I mean, he's totally having his only moment in his entire acting career. Because I went and looked at other stuff. I'm like, nope. New Jack City, man. (laughs) I forgot about that one. No, no. It's specifically this bad boy jerky guy that we all go for when we're stupid. The bad boy, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I I don't know if I've ever gone for a bad boy, but that's a personal choice. Well, you would if you were a girl. Here is the thing with Bender. He is his own worst enemy, and I feel like he's almost in parallel with Vernon, who he could be an understanding adult and guide these teens, but he's going to be a jerk. And Bender, like, he starts off as a jerk. He's almost getting in fights with Andy, pulling out switchblades. And then, oh, here's a moment of realization. Look at this. I got cigarette burns from my old man. And they, they, okay, moment of empathy. And then he's going to go full jerk mode. And then, oh, okay, let's get some pot, guys, and I'll smoke a peace pipe. And then goes, which feels very real. Like, one of the things I kind of ding John Hughes for a lot of times with these, they just feel like a type and, and they don't have a lot of nuance. And I get it. You got five characters. Characters. You don't want to have to go real deep, but I do feel like this is something with Bender's character that does feel genuine, where like you are your own worst enemy. He's going to win you over with those cool bad boy looks, and then he's going to be a complete asshole, and you're going to hate him, but then you're going to want to go back to him because he's cool, and he's sympathetic, and he really bears his soul throughout the film. But there's also good humor to balance this, because when he pulls out that switchblade after Andy takes him down... Best scene of the film. I know where you're going. Yep, it was great. 
And you're looking at Judd Nelson because he's giving this intense speech about how, because I'd kill you. But in the corner of the frame, Ali Sheedy is stealing the knife. It, it felt like Looney Tunes, like Bugs Bunny poking your head out, like to just take you that knife. I'm like, that is hilarious. And then I realized, oh, she's a klepto throughout the rest of the film too. No, she steals like a lock off a locker. That particular scene is so great. How she just like pokes out of the corner of the screen and takes it. But the knife never comes back for anything, does it? Like it doesn't fall out of the purse. She's not picking her teeth with it. It's just, I love Bugs Bunny as much as the next guy, but it's like, okay, she just took a knife. (laughs) In one of the cutscenes, when she and Andy go to get the drinks in the teacher's lounge, she uses the knife to break into the teacher's lockers and go through their stuff and steal somebody's Prince album. Oh, she didn't just have that in her purse? Oh. And by seeing a Prince album in a teacher's locker, they say, oh, a teacher listens to Prince? That means teachers are human. I mean, they actually that's the actual line. And it deserved to be cut. It wasn't a great scene. But the knife was being set up for that. Yeah, okay. we see her with the album later. That Okay, gotcha. When she dumps the purse on the couch, though, is the knife in there? Mm, I don't think so. Not that it was obvious to me, but yeah. I think Bender gets redeemed because he, you know, selfishly is making everyone go to his locker to get the pot. But he, of course, self-sacrifices. Rather than have them all get busted and all have to be in detention for, you know, weeks. Who knows what would the next phase be if they all got caught outside of the library. He makes that self-sacrifice choice. That's, I think, when we're given permission to forgive him and to like him. That's a big moment. Stuart, you said Claire was in love with him from the second she saw him. But she shoots him a look when he says that that I think really cements it. Like, that's when she gets over the hump. And is really just now in his camp. And that happens after Vernon's out in the hallway because he spilled his tar-like coffee all over everything. (laughs) Was that coffee? I'm like, does he have like hot fudge in his thermos? What is that? It's motor oil. That felt to me like a very uh, Ed Rooney moment, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, that's John Hughes. John Hughes is the funny guy that wants to do this. It's weird that he's making this movie that has these dramatic edges because most of his directorial career is farce. You just see hints of that. It just comes in times. And that was, I felt, one of them where I didn't even understand why we cut to Vernon other than to just pity his life when he can't even pour himself a cup of coffee without a disaster. But it's in the gym where he lured the vice principal where Bender really has his first hardcore confrontation with Vernon. Okay, is there a cutscene to explain where he got that white shoe that he's wearing that he kicks off? Like, he he switched a shoe. Apparently, this was said in the commentary. He said to John Hughes, you know how there's always just that random shoe in the gym? Why is there a shoe just lying around? Well, let's say I put on that random shoe in the gym, and I'm sitting here listening to the commentary like, what? No, I don't know there's always a random shoe. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, that was not a thing. <laughs> I feel like Judd Nelson was like living in his own world when he was doing some of this stuff. But here's where it gets the first hint of violence, because he pretends like he's going to throw the basketball at Vernon, and then he rolls it, and Vernon kicks it like hell back at him. That is the first moment of this could get physical between them. And that's when he gets locked in the closet and is going to crawl back through the ceiling. And again, a little bit of slapstick humor when he falls through the ceiling. 
And then I don't feel like he has a lot to share. Like, basically, he brings the pot, and it's the pot that's going to get all the other people to talk. Because let's face it, everyone expects someone like Bender to be in detention, but none of these other people are people that belong. You know, Claire certainly feels like, I don't belong. Why is Claire in detention? Everyone else, I know why. I didn't catch her reason. She skipped school. That's it? Yeah. Just one time? Usually you got to do it like five or six times to get detention. Marjorie, you know. Yeah, I'm like, I did it a lot. And it was like numerous days that... I got busted on, but they don't care what you do when you're skipping school. The the fact is that you just skip school. I mean, they don't care that you were shopping. Oh, it's because they lose out on federal money. I know this very well with with my job. (laughs) Do you remember thinking there were truant officers that would like hang out at the mall? And if they'd see you, they'd... That was a thing in movies that I saw as a kid. So yes. (laughs) Yes. Also, there are also dog catchers everywhere too. You don't see a dog catcher in real life. You know what I mean? Come on. (laughs) No, you don't. Now, I worked in the school's guidance office for some classes just because I was running out of classes to take my senior year. So I was an office assistant for a while just to get credits and they actually had a truant officer that would go to people's houses if your kid didn't show up like x amount of weeks to school and they'd go do a wellness check and then bring the kid to school or if the kid needed help they'd take him somewhere else but they did have someone that would go out they somehow knew claire was out there and yeah daddy can't get her out that's the other thing that like daddy can usually throw his money around and his weight around and This is a school where economics matters, but I guess there's a fight. The dad doesn't care and the mom does, so who knows who made the phone call, but Claire's got to spend eight hours here on Saturday. Yeah, I think it was the mom that ratted her out because the dad's promising as he's dropping her off, promising her a shopping spree once she gets out, which is good. She's going to need another diamond earring. There is another cutscene. You know, I think the best scene in the film is... Judd Nelson's when he's acting out how his home life is. No, Dad, how about you? You know, that whole thing. But in cutscenes, it actually started with Brian acting out his home life, and then Claire acts out hers, and she's talking about how both of her parents are trying to see who will buy her the better stuff, and then her mom's going to go to the Caribbean and take Claire with her, and the dad says, no, I love Claire more, and that's, you know, the only thing we get is briefly Claire mentions that they're near divorce in the final cut. But there was a whole thing where, just like Bender, she was doing the voices of her mom and her dad, and that's why... Later on, there's a line that Bender says, your mom off in the Caribbean was referencing this little skit she did. Yeah, she kind of gets reduced to all her problems are the fact that she's still a virgin, and that's highly embarrassing for her. And there does seem to be some judgment from the filmmakers that, like, she brought sushi, which, I mean, maybe that's just because that's not an exotic food anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I guess because I've been living in California so long, like sushi, like everyone just eats sushi. But 1985, Midwest, I I guess sushi is a good punchline. Yo, sushi was gross to me in 1985. I eat it all the time now, but... Yeah, because you just thought it was raw fish. Like, that's that was the joke. Yeah. More, she didn't have it refrigerated. You know, that's four (laughs) hours of sushi festering. It's You know what? I've made questionable refrigeration choices as well, but yeah, she may regret that. She may indeed. She's not going to the party tonight. She's not leaving the bathroom. Andrew had an entire carton of milk in that big brown bag. I was like, oh my God, these two of them. Yeah, Andrew's lunch is out of control. Yeah, they're going to have some (laughs) digestive issues. He's got to keep that weight up to be in his weight class and 
You know, when you have that much muscle, you gotta look at look at what The Rock eats. Jesus, he does not look like The Rock <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> he doesn't look like an athlete, let alone The Rock. No, he's a middleweight wrestler at best. I mean, he's lean and in good shape, but I wouldn't call it serious muscle. I mean, yeah, if Brian was there with his tank top in, you'd be like, yeah, Andrew's gonna drop him, but eh, be, he looked he looked fine. Not dancing like that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. That man screams with such rage, glass breaks, and nobody ever brings it up. That should be a detention. I was about to say, they're going to blame Bender for that. Yeah. You know what I couldn't stop thinking about was Kevin Bacon and Footloose yes. in the factory. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same mm-hmm. kind of dance. Yeah, I know Emilio did not get the callback for Footloose. <laughs> but back to Claire. Yeah, Standish is her last name, and she's standoffish, and I don't know, Marjorie, I'm I'm interested. Since you didn't get along with this princess type, do you end up having sympathy for her, hearing her story, hearing her embarrassment? Not really. I mean, her entire source of strife is that she plays her parents against each other, and... The biggest problem in her life is that she's never done it. Well, she also feels a lot of pressure to maintain her status. Like, to be the most popular girl, she feels a lot of pressure that she has to keep that. I think that's BS. I really do. I think they're really stretching to find something for her. I mean, everyone else had legitimate struggles. Hers is, oh, it's so popular. I don't know. She has the most John Hughes struggles. It feels like being upper middle class. And look, I don't want to downplay like we're we're all screwed up because of how we're screwed up by our parents and then we screw up our kids and they're going to screw up their kids. That's just how it goes. Some have a clear, a very privileged version of getting screwed up. But I, you know, I think everyone can benefit from some therapy, even if they're more minor problems like clear. But I got to feel like if you got these parents and their validation isn't about you, they're giving you all this attention just to hurt another person. Like, that's got to mess with you. Like, you got to talk that out on the couch with the shrink. A little bit. However, I just want to point out of all of them, you know, Bender's probably the one who has the most to worry about because his dad was burning him with cigars, throws things at him. Sounds like he might get physically abused. He's the one who showed up with no lunch. No one cared enough to send him a lunch. He might be food insecure. He's got real problems. Claire's problem is she she has to have an appearance to keep up. Unrefrigerated fish is not a laughing matter. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to bring up that Claire said that she feels that responsibility, that that pressure of keeping this appearance, keeping up appearances, and. Part of that might be, and she feels so many people expect so much of her all of the time. And so with her parents, she gets that dynamic at home. And when she comes to school, people always look to her constantly and she just cannot be left alone. And while that may be trivial compared to some of these other children's issues, to her, it's a huge problem that she cannot be by herself with herself and just content to be because so many people are constantly looking at her to see what she does and she does not like that responsibility for it. So while, again, it's not the same thing as having an abusive home life, physical abuse, it is still a real mental problem that she has to deal with. And something that I think those of us who are parents here can understand that sometimes you just, you don't get a break there. Sometimes there's this responsibility. One thing after another, you don't have a chance to do something for yourself, by yourself. And I can sympathize with that. That is her reality. Yeah, in in like a modern take in this movie, I would see Claire as like an Instagram influencer or something with, you know, I mean, that sounds minute, but like, you know, if you have this pressure on you to entertain people or bring something to people every hour of every day and remain relevant, that's pressure. I mean, it might not feel like pressure to grown up middle-aged men and women, 
but to a teenager. Um, yeah, trying to get a podcast out every fucking Tuesday, yeah. that's pressure. <laughs> to Arnie and Claire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, it, the, here's the thing, Marjorie, I, I feel you. It's easy to dislike Claire. I don't want to speak for everyone, but the rich kid, the snob, like... I knew an actual clear in high school, and I don't even want to tell the stories, like the the kind of interactions we had. They were, yeah, bender plus maybe sometimes, just going at it. But again, I think all these people, it's about being pressured. Well, when we get into Andy, when we get into Brian, there's all different pressures they're feeling. And so economically, she's the most well-off, but there's still that pressure of being a kid and having your parents' expectations. Here's what I think she needs. If she could talk about her virginity in terms of, I have this boyfriend who expects this out of me, and if I don't do it, he's going to go with another popular girl. I think that sh- that would have been a way to illuminate some of this that goes underreported. I like how the movie pulls out the double standard, though, because, you know, they start off early on. Bender is making fun of Brian for being a virgin. And that's really an embarrassing thing for Brian at that time. But then later on, when it gets around to Claire... Allison says it best, you know, if you didn't, you're a prude, and if you did, you're a slut. I mean, especially in the 80s, there was no such thing as sex positivity for women. If you slept with somebody in high school... You're a whore. Yeah, I mean, everybody would know about it, and you'd get that reputation. But sometimes that reputation is also what you need to remain popular. Yeah, I think it's harder when you're already popular and having to deal with that. I believe in this kind of hyper surreal scenario that she would end up kissing and making out with and feeling attracted to Bender. I wanted to sum that up as hooking up, but I didn't want to imply sex actually happened. But I like that he says, I'm what you need to get back at your father and make your father go nuts. That's true. Yeah. Is, are they dating? Like, we're, of course, left wondering about all of it. There's no conclusive answer. But I, I almost feel like she might take him up on it. Like, she might actually do this for a couple weeks just to see tongues whack. Well, the weirdest thing was them kissing right on the hood or, you know, next to the fender of the BMW. If that was a scenario in real life, the dad would have been out of the car pounding somebody. You'd think. I thought the end of the movie was so weird with like, wait, the dad's right there in the car. Are you kidding? Oh, not that dad. That dad kowtows to his daughter. He does kind of like honk the horn or something like, uh, come on, get in here. No, no, not, not a boy that looked like that for my princess. Squeezing out those five puppies. <laughs> but to answer the question, I I mean, the movie doesn't answer it directly, but I think the earring represents that, yes, they are a thing now. And I take that earring as a, here's a memento of the one day, and no, I will not be speaking to you on Monday, but we'll always remember (laughs) this day, take a diamond. That is the sequel, like, just call it Monday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Dad will buy me another earring, it's no big deal, just take it. You only have one ear pierced anyway. (laughs) I'd like to think that they're married and have five kids. Like, I actually like to think that they make it as a couple. (laughs) And did she turn into the fat person that he predicted after having the five kids? I mean, Molly Ringwald, I see her these days. She's on television occasionally. She looks pretty good. Yeah, but she doesn't have five kids and isn't married to a greaser. Yeah, she looks better than Judd Nelson looks these days. I'll just leave it at that. And let me put it this way. Molly Ringwald's living in Paris. Do you think Bender would ever move to Paris? (laughs) Paris, Kentucky, maybe. She looks better than Emilio Estevez, too, I want to say. And Emilio has a... He seems to be the least served of all the characters here, doesn't he? No, no. Well, we'll get to the least served. 
Yeah, I, I think he's got a, a very rich moment of tears, almost an Oscar speech. He has one moment, but until then, he basically is defending Claire and screaming and dancing. But Jacob, like you said, I do think his acting is really stiff here. Yeah, he'll have that moment later on. I, now I'm remembering that. But yeah, early on, he feels the most uncomfortable of the actors. And I think that's how he's just supposed to play it. I, I don't think it is the actor because he does have that scene later. And there are some moments of levity where I think he plays it pretty well. I just think that being the jock and everything, he's supposed to be tough guy all the time, especially wrestling. I mean, that's a sport where it's one step below boxing. You're just fight the whole time that you are competing. We did units of wrestling in gym class back then, and I had, oh my God, I have a respect for what actual competing wrestlers can do because that unit was always the hardest one. And it's an excuse for people who don't like each other who are in the same weight class to really hurt each other in the middle of class. It was remarkable to see how violent it actually could get. Regardless, the classic, oh, well, how masculine are you rolling on the floor with another man is, you know, that's a taunt that, of course, that was... The mainstay of high schools across the country. You wear tights? No, I wear the required uniform. Tights. You know, I, I say I was the punk. I was kind of a jock, too. Like, my freshman year, I went out for the basketball team. I didn't make it. And then I started playing in private hockey leagues because I loved hockey. And I was a goaltender. And one of the things, if you play hockey, you wear a garter belt. Because that's how you hold up those big, heavy socks to keep your legs warm. And I remember there was one kid who had to tape his socks up because his dad's like, you're not wearing a garter belt. You could be a jock, but you can't wear this very feminine thing in his perception, even though, you know, a hockey garter belt's very manly. Yeah, Andrew may be struggling with keeping up appearances. He's always calling out Bender for like, oh, you're just doing that for your image. I think that his most interesting moment is when everyone else is toking up. He doesn't really want to. But because everyone else is doing it, he finally is like, well, okay. And then when he gets high, like he's like running around by himself. Yeah, it's like his first time getting high, probably. It's a real buzz for him. Yeah, even Brian goes before he does. I got the impression that Allison didn't smoke. She doesn't. That was a big thing for Ali Sheedy. She would not do the weed. Okay, yeah, I never saw her with a doobie. There was a scene she improved, and it's deleted where while all the others were getting high she went off into a booth and like sung a song and danced and it didn't make the final cut but Ali Sheedy it was very important to her to not do drugs because she gave Andrew a look that what come on like because she the two of them were the last ones at the table and then Andrew just gives in and she gives him a look and then that was the last we saw we never saw her once so good I'm glad thanks for confirming that there's this subtly funny line where somebody asks Andy what's your problem and Allison jumps in, he can't think for himself, and he goes, yeah, she's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is. He is driven by what the expectations are for him. And you know what? High school is kind of like that. You don't really, at least my experience, you don't really get to be your own person until you step away from that environment and go to college or wherever your next step is. And so... Yeah, he's got a lot to learn. Right now, everything is set for him. You're going to go to this school. You're going to be on the wrestling team. Is it an expectation that you want your son to tape up the butt of another kid, though? That was a little <laughs> weird. And in looking at it from today's standpoint, 
the level of bullying that is involved to tape someone's ass up and then it's such a hairy ass that when you remove the tape, the skin comes with it. Is Andrew at all redeemable at that point? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he is. I mean, he's redeemable because he's remorseful. He actually has the forethought to be like, that kid has a father too. And he's got to answer to that father who's going to be deeply ashamed. And so he's able to think about it in terms of, I hate it when my father disapproves of me. I can't imagine what this kid said to his dad. Well, Andy asked the question himself. He says, like, how do you apologize for something like that? I think Andrew's character might have been a little more sympathetic if maybe he talked about having a perfect older brother that his father really does idolize and he's trying to live up to that, you know, but as it is now, he's just kind of a slave to his dad's wishes here. Yeah, at the time, you know, when I was a kid, I felt really bad for him. Oh, man, you felt pressured to beat up this kid. (laughs) But watching it now, I'm like... That's less sympathetic than Claire. Oh my God, I felt so bad I bullied a kid to the point of that he might have been next in line with Brian for the flare gun. Yeah, you came in as an Emilio fan. So again, you were probably wanting to like him. It does take a stretch because, yeah, this is the kind of behavior that makes you a villain. And they don't tell you until the movie's almost done. They've already made you like him because he defended the woman and he could dance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Were people in love with that dance? But then we find out that this guy who we've come to like in this movie did this thing and it seems more acceptable. I just think that In the 80s, it was more acceptable to bully. I legitimately believe that. Wouldn't we have seen the jocks do this to the nerds before they got their revenge and Revenge of the Nerds? It feels comical to me to tape someone's ass cheeks and... I tried to figure out how you even do that. Well, how do you even (laughs) think about that? Man, I'm going to pick on Bob over there. Let's tape his ass cheeks. I mean, what the hell? What happened to Wedgies or... I don't know. Why did anyone get picked on? Like, it feels very random in high school opportunity yeah it's like why do you steal opportunity why does this kid because he explains the whole thing i was taping up my knee i had the tape kids there naked boom it wasn't premeditated it was spur of the moment i'm not defending andrew's actions i'm just explaining how it happened it was second degree ass taping (laughs) (laughs) it was butt slaughter (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, if he, if he went around taping everyone's ass, then we got a problem. I just try to figure, like, do you do that in circles around the front, or are you just, like, band-aiding it together? Well, you could take, like, when you're taping a box shut and you're trying to keep the flaps closed. <laughs> so tape it, like, on the hip and stretch it and squeeze those buns and then tape it on the other side. <laughs> I assume he went, like, horizontal versus vertical. Yeah, do you, like, strips? Wait, did he go long ways or did he go along the seam? You got to give Andrew props, though. He must be very dexterous to do it all by himself. Having someone else hold the kid down, that's amazing. He can actually contort his body that way to do it. He's he's a wrestler. wrestler. (laughs) Pinning him. It's what they do. Yeah. Exactly. That's why he's state champ. I think maybe also why it's weird, too, is you'd think his target would be Brian. You'd think that it's the nerd that's always going to be the one that gets abused. If indeed it wasn't just male horseplay, but in fact a physical aggressive attack, then yeah, Anthony Michael Hall is your victim. We saw it from the word go. Yeah, I feel like Brian was very lucky to have P.E. a different period. (laughs) You might be right there. Brian seemed to be the one taking the story the hardest, though, because when they would zoom out on the shot, Brian had his head in his hand like, man, I know this kid, this is awful, whereas the other two are just like, are you kidding? 
Well, he did say he knew the kid, so I implied that they were friends. That's how I took that to be that. So he was, he it basically, he wasn't necessarily Brian, but it was Brian's quote-unquote type. And no one has a lot of sympathy for him. Everyone thinks that, you know, when they do impressions of his house, it's Leave It to Beaver, his mom married Mr. Rogers. Like, they just think that it comes easy. They never question why he's in detention, and you'd have to think him and since we're going with types, his type wouldn't be in detention that often. They wouldn't skip class. They wouldn't need to cheat on tests. He's the brain. He is at the lowest rung of this totem pole here. Nobody gives this guy any respect. Here's my question with Brian. Did they think he just set a fire with a flare gun? Did they not know the purpose when they gave him detention? Because you don't give detention for a suicide attempt. You you get a mental health counseling. That's what I was thinking. Like, no one authoritatively put together that that was a suicide attempt because it was just so ridiculous. And it just seems like a prank you'd do. I shoot a flare gun in the middle of school to make a, a boom and scare it. I, I thought about that too, Jacob. No, no one ever put suicide together except for the kids in that room. So that's a revelation when he says why he brought that gun. That's the first time he's admitting that. Because again, it seems weird if he's in detention for a suicide attempt. Yeah, it went off on its own, so it's not like he was trying to put it to his head and, and something went wrong with it. Just It went off in the locker, so it just seemed like a, a prank gone wrong. I do love the opening montage where you see around the school, and they show you this locker that's caught on fire, and there's all this ash around it, and you you know it, it's on second or third watching that you realize, oh shit, that's the locker where the flare gun went off. Yeah, I do feel like they made it a flare gun to lessen the tension, like, because everyone laughs then, and it's kind of a silly moment, because it's very dark and dramatic when he's telling that story, and then, oh, it's a flare gun, and it started a fire, ah. Is the funny thing picturing him killing himself with it, like, his entire head would light up as he dies? <laughs> Just his hair, yeah. One of my favorite funny bits in the movie is when they're like, hey, what kind of gun was it? It was a flare gun. And Emilio Estevez just starts busting out laughing, realizes it's awkward, and then everyone's like, yeah, that's that, that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> you know, except for the part you wanted to kill yourself. But yeah, the flare gun part, that, that's pretty stupid. <laughs> but the flare gun's also in the same locker as the lamp, and so maybe they could even think, that kid did not know how to wire that device. <laughs> He's he's failing shop. <laughs> Failed wiring, too. You know, in a post-Columbine world, though, even bringing a flare gun to school is drastically different than in the 80s. You know, I can't even imagine a movie today where a kid brings a gun to school. Yeah, when they remake this, it will not be that gun at school storyline. But I do want to say, just, you know, all jokes aside about Brian, like, the where I really connect with him is that to get an F was like, oh my God, my whole life is ruined. If I got an F in a class, I couldn't imagine such a thing. Stuart, do you know how many times I had to hear the lecture from my father? I only ever got a B once in high school. Everything else in A, like every one of my siblings had to hear that story every time we got a C or something. Yeah, it, it was a nightmare. I know that my brother was all A's, honor roll, and the expectation was you're going to do the same thing. And I really did. Halfway through my high school career, I just gave up. And yep. <laughs> I took high academic classes. I was all in the AP classes, but I was getting C's, D's. I mean, there were a couple almost F's. 
That's where I was, but it was really funny because the higher classes actually bumped your GPA a point. So mm-hmm. a B in the higher class was a 4.0, whereas an you'd have to be an A in the lower class. So I had like a GPA of like a 3.2 and I was getting C's and D's. Mm-hmm. I was the only person in AP with dyed jet black hair. We're kind of turning into the breakfast club here. We're all doing little confessions. Like I'm not sharing anything. <laughs> 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 yeah, I got nothing. I'm not sharing <laughs> shit right now. I got a hundred percent participation awards, man. I I straight it up. Let me tell you about all my childhood trauma. <laughs> you guys didn't have grades in your high school, but <laughs> pass fail. That I was feel- all the classes. Okay. Yeah, they went to those weird hippie schools. I got a check mark and a star. My high school experience was I basically just learned life skills. Like I talked my way into grades. You know, I never really exerted myself, but I never failed anything. And I kind of, I don't know, maybe I charmed my way into a couple passing grades here and there. So, you know, the things you learn in high school, I think you take with you beyond that. The art of the bullshit. But Brian, I really do feel for him. And I think Anthony Michael Hall, this whole movie does give a stellar performance because, you know, he's such a wannabe like he has his clique of friends but he he'll take abuse after abuse after abuse from bender from andy he's still just the nicest guy to them a little bit of a suck up exactly yeah he's uh, such a more likable screech in this scenario (laughs) yes i'm really trying to avoid the term beta but that's really what he is. No, I feel bad for this guy because, again, I relate, I think, a little bit with all these characters. There, there's a little struggle that y'all have that I could kind of think back on my life. And Brian, like, the fact that he's going to be the fifth wheel of this group, he's not going to get the girl, that they're like, you know what? We all decided you're going to do this essay the best. So why don't you just do it? <laughs> like, so he's the one stuck. Like, why everyone's making out and hooking up. He's stuck writing this essay. But he's loving every minute of it, though. Yeah, John Hughes talked about that. Apparently, one film critic, I think it was Ebert, actually said to him just privately, I was the Brian in class, and why didn't Brian get a girl? And Hughes was like, well, you're really projecting yourself into that character, and Brian wouldn't even know what to do at this point. You know, he's at least five or six years off from even really being able to do it. Brian's big moment was writing the essay. Brian's moment was feeling included and being flattered by Claire. You are the smartest. He kisses the paper. Yeah. yeah. The way he kind of bumps himself on the arm, like, good job, kid. <laughs> I mean, he does get to open and close this movie. Do they change that essay at all, or is it the same opening and closing, besides signing off as the Breakfast Club at the end? If there's different wording and a couple sentences different here or there. I just want to point out, though, he would have failed that essay, because that is not a thousand words. <laughs> it is not. And it's not an essay. It's like a note. Yeah. Well, and Brian is the only character that is concerned about what happens to them on Monday. He's the one who brings it up. You know, he wants to know... I consider you guys friends now. Are we friends? Yeah, which, you know, Clear's response, like, again, you could hate her. She's being honest. Like, I think that is how the way it would go. That's why I think, like, yeah, 1986, give us Monday morning. Like, I want to see that sequel because I do think they go back to their own cliques. That's how it was. Think about what Brian said, though, is... Brian says, you know, on Monday morning, will you talk to me? And Claire says no, and Andy says no, and even Bender says no. And Brian says, so I guess Allison and I are just better people. But earlier in the movie, Carl the janitor comes in and is like, hi, Brian. And Brian looks down. He does not acknowledge Carl. He does not Mm. do what he says he would do in front of these strangers where he's trying to keep up an appearance. He does not go, hi, Carl, how you doing? 
And, you know, I like Carl. I wish they had done... So- I think it's like a cool Greek chorus to know there's this character that everyone ignores, e- even more than Ali Sheedy. Like, he doesn't exist. You just clean up our trash. But he knows things about them. Are there more cut scenes with him? I feel like his knowledge should have benefited the day in some way. There's a couple cut scenes of him with Vernon. But what's really cut is... You know, each of these characters in The Breakfast Club, and even Vernon, they all get a monologue. If if this were a stage play, and it has become a stage play in many high schools, there would be the time that the lights dim on everybody else, and one person gets up in the spotlight for like five minutes of a soliloquy. Carl got one of those right after he says, I read your notes, I know everything about you. He goes on for about five minutes straight without being interrupted. Is there anything revealed, though? Because I do feel like this character, like, here is your working class guy, you know, we've talked about all the economic rankings of, of all these students, but like this one is between an Allison and a Bender, probably. But he has all this knowledge and you could really make a case like, okay, you could be the smart person in the Valley of Victorian, succeed that way, but you could also be a working class person and succeed as well. Carl's arc is that at the beginning of the movie, they flash to a shot of him as a student at this school. They do? Man of the year. He was a man of the year, a person on track to be a successful human being. I I wish they would have called that out more then. Oh my God, I had no idea. That's amazing. I didn't notice that. He has hair and everything. It's a really great little thing in the beginning. So if you catch it, and I and I caught it this time too, Justin, you're talking about all this stuff about Carl, Carl, Carl. It's there in the movie. It's just, it feels like it was cut. If you said it before he had a monologue, I thought he was going to go off about how he was that important guy in his high school and look where he is now. That is part of the monologue, and it's all because he got some chick knocked up, and then he had to take a job, and then the chick left him, and he has child support payments, and eventually you go back to the school that you graduated from, and you talk to HR, and next thing you know, this is your job. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) But in his soliloquy, he says he knows what's going to happen to all these kids in the future. He says Bender has 10 years max, He's going to live in a rundown trailer in West Texas. His bitch of a wife's going to take the kid and split, and he's going to overdose on heroin, and the dog will eat the body before the police even arrive. (laughs) So Carl's a time traveler. Oh my God. (laughs) That's a little dark. And I think (laughs) unlikely. Brian is going to be a corporate success, have a lot of money, big bucks, black jaguar, Three heart attacks before he's 40 and the third one kills him. You know what? This what would have been great is if the end credits was the freeze frame and they do the flash (laughs) forward like they did so many times in the 80s. Just, yeah, die 10 years later, heroin overdose. Four heart attacks, but a successful CEO. Allison will have three kids married and get a wood panel station wagon, the family truckster I'm taking it from vacation. (laughs) And hasn't lost that baby weight. And be the hit of the carpool. Andy... District sales manager of a golf club manufacturer making twenty two five a year, driving a compact car, and the stewardess he marries becomes hugely fat. And as for Claire, six facelifts and two boob jobs by the time she's 40, and a husband with more girlfriends than anniversaries. That's all in that statement right at the beginning. So he was just another Vernon to reinforce these stereotypes, it sounds like. That's disappointing. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I, again, the one thing I can tell everyone out there listening is, if you're still in high school and you think you can predict the trajectory... I mean, Marjorie, art class valedictorian died a week after graduation. You never can know where life's going to go. Haven't we all learned that from Facebook looking people up and wow, they turned out very differently than I would have predicted. 
Hey, Stuart, back me up on this. Who would have thought I'd make 31? Per year? <laughs> That's what Vernon made. No, 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 his age. <laughs> Are you a vice principal? <laughs> I figured they'd be in the low 60s by now. But here's the thing I will say is like, of all the predictions that Carl is making, Allison is the one that I'm like, I see the worst outcome. And it's not because of choices i i worry about mental illness it, for her she needs treatment oh yeah i mean they don't they call her a future cat lady or or say she probably has a bunch of cats bag lady bag lady that's what it was which is basically a cat lady well i, I mean one of the things that was missing from the 80s and into the 90s was acknowledgement of mental health issues i mean clearly instead of being in a detention brian probably should have been with a therapist and because he had a gun at school even if it's a flare gun problem right there i mean obviously allison has some issues bender yeah but i mean mental health was very on the dl and and hush hush and people didn't talk about things like that back then but is she mentally ill or is she the biggest poser of all of them that's how i took it well that's the thing she i guess we can't believe anything she says that's the one thing she's a compulsive liar but she says she's just showing up there because she wants to like we never get a reason besides that she had nothing ever to do I think she is like the genius, not Brian. Brian's book smart. She is the genius of the group and will go start Amazon 10 years later. <laughs> Do you think she just shows up to the, the breakfast club so she can steal stuff on a Saturday? <laughs> well, and to get prettied up by the preppy girl because now she's important. Oh, okay. Can, can we talk about what is Allison's arc? Because she was always my favorite character in this movie until the makeover. You know why she got the makeover though, Jacob? Because... Men can't acknowledge women unless they're pretty. I think she looks awful when she gets the makeover. She looks way less attractive. Maybe that says something about my standards, but I felt that's such a betrayal. This is about learning who you are, not giving into pressure. Like, yeah, have the jock hook up with the weird chick. Like, why not? But her arc is that she's ignored. Well, if there's anything to it, it's that she let Claire do it. She trusted her to, hey, why are you being nice to me? She opened up. I don't feel like that was a moment that was built up with trust between them. But I think that's what he was attempting in 1985 with it. But it's a common trope, and it was even back in the 80s. You have a girl with glasses, and she's terribly nerdy. Guys don't like her. Suddenly, she takes off the glasses and takes her out of her ponytail, and she's super sexy. And she's popular then. And that's exactly what's happening with her. It was a terrible plot point for her because he liked her, but I guess only if she cleaned up. It is kind of bullshit. I mean, Andy did pay attention to her. He followed her around the library and tried to get her to talk and discuss some things about her life. And she's the one, she says to him that she's invisible and her parents don't care. But he only cares about her as much as he cares about Brian until she puts on lipstick. No, there's a couple times where he's just like looking at her. And when she turns and he just, he turns away. So there's a couple moments where he's just like focused on her for a moment or two. And you're like, why is he creeping on her a little bit? But, but in a positive way, because there are other times when they're all staring at her, like she's completely crazy. Like when she makes a sandwich of Captain Crunch and sugar, which is fantastic. (laughs) It should be on toast. Come on. That's a really funny scene. That entire lunch thing is great. The grease ending you're talking about, Marjorie, is something that obviously bothers me sometimes when I watch this movie and doesn't bother me other times. Depending on the day I watched this movie, and I've seen it you know, many times as a younger person, I didn't understand why they got together. And then other times I'm like, oh, I get it because they bonded mentally. And now she's able to come out of her shell a little bit because she knows she has a connection with this guy and she feels confident enough to actually show him what she actually looks like. I don't know. I think she would have felt more comfortable 
comfortable with Brian. But here's the problem. I get why Claire and Bender get together. They are the total opposites. They're on the, the total opposite end of the spectrum. Of course, opposites attract. They come together. That's your arc, your emotional story, your love theme, all that. I don't know why we need a second coupling. It just feels like we have a boy and a girl, so let's get them together too. Allison gets Andy, though, by saying he can't think for himself. She cracks the nut it, with Andy's just like, yeah, she's right. She understands him. If she were just an awkward girl, like a nerd girl, I guess this might be a magical moment. I just think like, oh, she's schizophrenic. This is not what she needs. She doesn't need makeup. She needs Prozac or something. <laughs> you know, like there's this is there are much bigger issues at play here. She definitely doesn't need to eat that sandwich. Like the pixie sticks and the cereal. Oof. <laughs> well, I mean, is it better than olive loaf, which she threw away, right? That was what the- pimento loaf, right? Pimento loaf. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> pimento gross. Yeah, that needs to be thrown away. I think what's going on with Allison is that she needs attention, and when she gets attention, she doesn't know how to deal with it. She's a less violent bender. Right. You're exactly right. She is doing everything she does to get somebody to pay attention to her, and then when it works, she's totally confused. You know, I love Ali Sheedy's acting, though, when she comes out as the pretty girl and Brian is like odd and she gives him that look thinking he's making fun of her. And she just juts out her jaw and gives this intense look like she's getting really mad. And then, you know, Brian makes a face like, no, no, you look great. And then she smiles. I really like that bit of a performance. And having seen Ali Sheedy in almost everything she did up through, I mean, Man's Best Friend, that horror (laughs) movie about the dog. Uh, I love that you include that in her resume. (laughs) Made to order. Made to order. She's great in. I saw that in theaters. Only the lonely. Nowhere is great a short circuit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Nice software. She is a pretty, pretty girl. But yet she pulls off this proto-goth look really well. Like, I believe her as this coat-wearing outcast and when she cleans up at the end, she just looks like the Ali Sheedy who would go on to be in a hundred other movies, including St. Almost Fire that year. Yeah, I wish she had more of a moment. So I guess because she's such a mute character for most of the film, I wanted more to be done with her. And if, you know, Brian's the fifth wheel, he's not going to get a chick, but she feels like a fifth wheel too when it comes to the story arcs, the character arcs. And some of the appearance things that we're picking on here is with 35 years of retrospect. I mean, seeing her dressed like a goth then was shocking. And I don't think it was a look she was trying to curate. I think it was just a lack of effort on her part. You know, whatever was laying on her floor. Morrissey was a thing back then, right? Yeah, but Morrissey was put together. I mean, it's 85. There was punks. This is how Susie Sue would dress. This is Exene from X would dress, like all in black. and. I mean, I don't know. This isn't a shocking look. The fact that this she would get a makeover, that, that has always shocked me. My mom would try to buy me like pink things and girly things and then immediately toss them in favor of my black clothes and stuff like that. This is how me and my friends dressed. This is... Yeah, dyeing our hair, doing undercuts, all the normal for us. Oh, it was the 90s. Everyone had an undercut. Yeah, I had one in the 80s. (laughs) I knew a lot of girls who were uncomfortable with their bodies, and so they would wear oversized stuff. And I know back in the 80s, like big shoulder pads and puffy things were in, but I'm talking like oversized. And I got that impression with her as well, because she has her hair in front of her face, and she's always dressed in the flowing things. So I thought maybe she's... So when the makeover comes, she's she's wearing things that are slimmer to her figure, etc. Like I noticed that aspect of it as well. That might be, you know, she's like a shrinking violet almost in a sense. But is she supposed to be a butterfly who came out of her cocoon? Because 
I'm guessing they didn't go shopping for that pink shirt. Underneath all that black, <laughs> does she have that pink shirt? Yeah, she's got different clothes on all of a sudden. Could be the lost and found where the other white sneaker is. You never it know. It was in her purse when she dumped it out. <laughs> Who lost a blouse at school? <laughs> the scene where she talks about sleeping with her shrink is odd, but man, the way she delivers that line, you know, when she told her, the only person she told she was a nymphomaniac to was her shrink. What, what did he do? He nailed me. Just just her delivery right there. It's almost as uncomfortable as when Bender is sexually harassing Claire. It's just, there's something about that line, especially trying to think of her as a 16-year-old girl that is just wrong. I guess I don't, I don't know. This is the group I hung out with. This is, again, it was about shock value and just pissing people off. So we would say crude things that the women would too. Right. I, I Yeah, I, I don't think that she's, fully mentally healthy but at the same time i think she's a personality shopper you know i think she's still out there looking for who she wants to be and replicate again i wish there was a story then and to justify the change she goes through maybe the year before she went out for the cheerleading team and who knows like she's always trying to change to i don't know something to set up this change right the sequel i want to see is not monday morning but it's the next saturday when bender (laughs) in uh Allison are both in that room again. <laughs> See if she walks in again. <laughs> and she's a completely different person. Not because of a mental illness, because she's just screwing with people. <laughs> but it is the 80s, so after they have that big powwow sitting on the floor, you know, their emotional support circle, they have to show that they're all really okay. So let's blare some rock music that somehow Vernon cannot hear right across the <laughs> hall. He didn't smell the marijuana, so maybe he's deaf too. He's in the basement drinking beer with Carl. Yeah, he's in the basement. He doesn't, he doesn't care anymore. I don't know. I think in an empty school, those sounds would ricochet. <laughs> but they have a big dance sequence where the three guys are doing the fist pump in sync. Somehow. It's embarrassing. Cut it. I like the little foot ankle dance that Bender and Allison do. That was kind of cool where they're shuffling. Say what you will about Claire. She's obviously the best dancer of them all. She has the best rhythm. She's got the best moves. Ali Sheedy is actually a trained dancer and it shows in this moment. He's willing to die for this argument, I think. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to try to take it away from you. It just, I was trying to give Claire a compliment, I think. (laughs) Claire is presented as the best dancer. But after the dance sequence, it's time for Simple Minds to come up again, and they part ways. Now, we've already kind of talked, will Bender and Claire see each other on Monday? Does anybody think Andrew and Allison are going to be friends on Monday? I mean, if Claire goes over to Allison's place Monday morning and does her makeup again, sure. No, I think by taking that patch off his Letterman jacket... That's the souvenir. The earring may be a token of going steady, but this was it as far as Allison. Again, I'm not convinced Allison will even be in school next week. I don't know. I mean, teenagers, once they make a connection, that's the thing that breaks down those barriers, the societal barriers that they feel like they're in. And they might just say, fuck it. I don't care what my friends think about this. But I like that the movie leaves it open and we don't know. But you can take it either way. It's essential to that this movie never had a sequel or anything to say definitively. I mean, how terrible would it be if they had a class reunion and brought the actors back all these years later? I mean, we'd want to know, of course. I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened. John Hughes wanted to do it. Really? Yes. Not just an SNL skit or something, like a, a real movie? <laughs> With Judd Nelson. Before Richard Linkletter ever made a before film... John Hughes, while making this, had the idea, 
let's all get back together every 10 years and check in on the breakfast club. Hmm. But what happened was, first of all, he said he'd never work with Judd Nelson again. Yeah. So that idea was pretty much off the table. Well, you could kill him. I mean, every or have him in prison like everyone thought he'd be. I mean, the janitor said he only had 10 years. He'd be dead by the next film. But from all the books I read, all the things I've listened to, interviews, everybody says that what happened was John Hughes lost his muse. He really wanted to work with Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald again and again. And he was really hurt when Anthony Michael Hall would not play Ducky in Pretty in Pink. Michael Hall would do weird science, but then not work with Hughes anymore. And Molly Ringwald, both of them felt like John Hughes has put us in kid roles. But if we're going to be actors, we need to spread our wings and do other things. When Molly Ringwald said no to some kind of wonderful, John Hughes was a person known to hold a grudge, and he never spoke to her again till he died. Wow. So he spoke to her on his deathbed? Well, no, she sent him a letter when she moved to Paris saying how much he meant to her, and he just responded by sending flowers, but they never spoke again. And he really held a grudge against both her and Anthony Michael Hall for not continuing to work with him and not continuing to hang out with him at concerts and the mall and things, and that's when his films changed. It was when he stopped doing teen movies is when he lost his teen friends. And now all of a sudden he's doing she's having a baby and started doing kid movies. Curly Sue and Home Alone. I mean, you could really see it affected Anthony Michael Hall as well. I mean, he spent the rest of the 80s trying to shed the nerd. Yeah, he got jacked up for Edward Scissorhands. I can't believe it's the same guy. Yeah. Johnny B. Good, before that, playing a football player in Johnny B. Good a couple of years later, I'm like, why is he playing Johnny B. Good? Clearly, it's a try to change his image. And in real life, he's a pretty big dude. I mean, he's older, but like when you see him in things where he's guest starring, you're like, wow, he's, he's a tall and muscular. What's funny is they filmed this movie in order, and when they started, he was shorter than Judd Nelson. And when they ended, if you look at that dance scene with the three of them, he is towering over both Emilio and Judd. <laughs> How long was the shoot? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> Ten years. I mean, three inches. I mean, you going through puberty, like that could be a year, but. It was a few months and he had a growth spurt. Well, if he was 16, yeah. I mean, my son grew like eight inches in, in a year. So Yeah, okay. But here's the thing. I mean, of course, when you're starting out your career, you want to play other things. You don't want to be thought of as a kid the, when you're 20 years old. You want to move into that adult realm. But they should count themselves lucky, right? To have all been attached to a movie of this caliber. To be thought of as a one-trick pony. Just to be typecast as these five. That's a huge deal most actors don't get to have. And four of them have kind of embraced it. I mean, especially after John Hughes died. With the Criterion disc, you've got on bonus features, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, Judd Nelson, and Anthony Michael Hall. And even at the Lincoln Center for this movie's 25th anniversary or 30th, those four showed up. Emilio was supposed to show up, and he didn't. And at the Oscars, they had a tribute when John Hughes died. Emilio didn't show up. Emilio... He just had a movie come out. Did you guys know about this? I know he directs now. Is it is... Mighty Ducks 7? <laughs> yeah, Mighty Ducks is all I know. Yeah, Mighty Ducks 17, direct a video, direct a Disney Plus. He directed and acted. Are you using that term loosely? In a movie called The Public about a library, and it 
he was doing like a press tour for it in 2019. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say it's a movie about a library? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is it about replacing the glass that he broke in Breakfast Club? Does he play a librarian? <laughs> What's really funny is he's starring with other 80s bad boys, Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater. Okay. But- so are they mad that the book they want is already checked out? <laughs> is it just them going, shh, the whole time? I haven't seen this movie. No one did. Why but- won't the homeless man get off the computer? I need to look this up. <laughs> ah, great. Homeless Jimmy's looking at porn again on the computer. Go get the water spray bottle. Let's get him out of here. Spray him a few times. He'll leave. He's become a bit of a recluse, though. I mean, Emilio doesn't do a lot of press. He hasn't starred in movies in a long time. He is doing some directing, but, like, one film a decade. Like, before The Public, the last film he made, I actually saw it. It was called The Way. Yeah. And it had his dad in it and things. And he... On this press tour, because it was a film about a library, every time, I saw a lot of interviews, every time somebody would say, Breakfast Club, he'd just take this big sigh, just be like, here we go again. No one ever asked me about young guns. Or wisdom. Or men at work. (laughs) Men at work is great. They do ask about Mighty Ducks, apparently, a lot, Oh, yeah. But he was very upset with the label Brat Pack. Because he only worked with these guys in Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire. You know, the rest of them, they all worked together again and again and again. But wait, I never considered him part of the Brat Pack, though. Oh, no, he was. The news article that called them the Brat Pack claimed he was the leader of the Brat Pack. Oh. Mm -hmm. On the party scene. Right. I count The Outsiders as a Brat Pack movie. He was in that, too. Who wasn't, though? It's probably where they all met to form the Brat Pack. I mean, they were all 12. It really, it was before, it was like before. Tom Cruise was there, too, but he's not in the Brad Pack, even though he was still popular at this time. He was not really considered part of this. John Cusack was working a lot during this time. He wasn't really considered part of the Brat Pack, either. Rob Lowe is considered, although he's not in the John Hughes movies. Rob Lowe was certainly considered part of that. So it's really hard to figure. Andrew McCarthy also is considered part of the Brat Pack. Yeah, Demi Moore. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the St. almost Fire crew. Right. Yeah. And most of them were also in the Breakfast Club. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't really hear of Anthony Michael Hall as partying in the Brat Pack. No. But from what I got from interviews recently, it seems like Emilio might have been the anti-Charlie Sheen. While Charlie shot up and did hookers and blow, it seems like Emilio stayed really laser-focused and clean and wanted to work and further his career and get out of his father's shadow and become a great actor. So he didn't like that label. And he says he doesn't like to look back. He is not interested in any kind of retrospective or reunion or anything. That is a part of his life. He enjoyed it during that part of his life, and he's done with that part of his life. He'd like to talk about the public, please. Yeah, and Arnie, I'm I'm glad you said all that because uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the show Psych, and they always make references to John Hughes movies, did a whole episode that really riffed off Breakfast Club, and Every member of the Breakfast Club, except for Emilio Estevez, has somewhere guest starred on one episode. Or actually, Ali Sheedy's had a pretty big role on four or five episodes arc that went multiple seasons. So every every one of them, Molly Rainwald, Judd Nelson, Anthony Michael Hall was in several episodes in like the, one of the later seasons. Every one of them except Emilio Estevez. And you're like... Oh man, you, he they almost had the entire Breakfast Club guest star on the show throughout. A, a Val Kilmer showed up in an episode for crying out loud, and you couldn't get Emilio Estevez. Yeah, he just doesn't act much anymore either, and it's a shame because the last thing I saw him act in really was called Rated X, which he did with Charlie, and it was bad. 
The last thing I remember watching on purpose of Emilio Estevez, besides the Mighty Ducks movies, was Young Guns 2, remembering, God, I don't like this movie. And maybe that's, you know, he, he had Young Guns and he had Mighty Ducks, and then he just disappeared. And so I just took it as maybe he got married. Like, you know, Rick Moranis, he retired, he raised his kids, right? Maybe Emilio had kids and he retired. That's what I took it to be. Well, keep in mind, he was, you know, around the time of Mighty Ducks 3, he was divorcing Paul Abdul. Oh, I forgot about that. Why do I know this? Yeah, wow. Arnie, wow. you were like a source <laughs> totally of forgot about really that. a lot of useless knowledge. And, you know, we were discussing beforehand, have we reviewed all of these people before? And Emilio, the only movie we've discussed him in was his cameo at the very beginning of Mission Impossible. Oh, that's right. And it- Yeah, he's in it for about five minutes. Oh, yeah, Tom Cruise was friends with Emilio. Emilio was Tom's best man. Why do you know that? <laughs> Stuart told me. I brought that one to him. Wait, yeah. You guys have some bizarre conversations. <laughs> we we did have to do a whole Tom Cruise retrospective. I mean, it wasn't like I just sat around. Stuart read books about <laughs> you, the man. You, you dove deep into who his best man was. Wait, which wedding was it? The Kate? first. Uh, his Scientology wedding. Okay. Yeah, his. Mimi Rogers, yeah. So, do you recommend The Breakfast Club? Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to give it a B plus as far as a grade goes. My criteria is, does this thing hold up now? Does it mean something to watch it now for me? And I did. I got the feels watching this movie. It's not perfect, but I do think that it's still relevant. I would be proud to show it to my nieces or any younger person. I think that there's still things about public high school that remain true. And just about the way teenagers relate. I mean, I do think that the younger generations, the cliques are different. They're maybe a little bit more collaborative, but there's always angst. There's always problems. And I think that this is a nice touchstone that may connect you to your parents and your grandparents as well. Jerry. I was a little bit on the fence for a little bit because when I was watching the movie again for the first time in 32 years yesterday, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm not sure if I really like this movie just as a movie i mean the the nostalgia and remembering the times when i enjoyed seeing it and certain bits and lines in the movie just make me crack up but when i think about the movie of things that are kind of messy like i don't get the whole bender and claire dynamic where he's yelling at her she says i hate you he says good and literally two minutes later they're making out. And you're just like, I, I don't get how this movie's connected. The personal moments and the interactions are well done, but just as a movie beginning to end, I'm, I fear in 2020 that there's no one who I would actually say, oh, you got to watch this movie. Like, you know, my son's 19 years old now, and this is not a movie I'd say, oh man, Josh, you got to sit down and watch this movie with me. This movie's great. So I'm going to give it a mild not recommend, actually. And even for myself, I, I don't think I'm ever going to return to this movie again. I watched it at 45 years old, and I think I'm good. Marjorie. You know, I really enjoyed this movie when it came out because it was, I believe, the 80s high school experience, 80s middle school experience, and somewhat into the 90s because I think there was a very big bullying kind of thing like that going on. And it did kind of bleed over to 2000s, but I think it was a different kind of bullying. I think it's still going on. No, I, th- I thought they had this whole anti-bullying thing and everybody's friends now and all this. Yeah, that's the aspiration. I don't know that I'm believing the slogan, but yeah, it gets better. Justin, you have a daughter in high school. Is this still going on? Yes, it do- it still goes on, yes. Okay, so this still goes on, but I think that this movie is stuck in the 80s. And I don't think that 
teenagers today would get the same out of it that we did. And perhaps if there was a remake to maybe make it not your mom and dad's movie, because that's what it is, sadly, might make it more meaningful to kids today. I mean, it does have some important messages about acceptance, but I don't know that those messages carried on like we talked about into the next week. I like this movie. A lot of times I'll turn on like if I'm doing something around the house, it's noise. I liked it a lot at the time. I don't think that it's a perfect movie. It's got some weak parts. I think that dancing scene is a really big weak part <laughs> just because it kind of comes out of nowhere and it makes no sense and why weren't they heard? But I'll give it a recommend because I think it was a snapshot of the mid 80s for those of us who were in middle school and high school and grade school in the 80s. It won't translate well, but you know I, I'm going to give it a recommend for that. And if you were born at that time, I suggest you watch it if you haven't. Justin. I agree with a lot with what Stuart said. I do think that this movie does have some themes and some messages that still hold up today. I mean, think about it. This movie is 35 years old. Now, when this movie came out, it was 1985. So I don't know if there's a movie that came out in 1950 that would still be relevant when this movie came out. So I think just at that, having some relevance now, this many years later is somewhat of a feat. I mean, yes, there are things that are dated, but it doesn't feel so dated. I mean, there's other movies from the 80s you look at, it's like, whoa, what were we thinking, like, as a culture? This movie isn't blatantly 80s, you know? It's The heart of it is somewhat timeless. And, like I said earlier, I have a relationship with this movie. I saw it when I was pre-high school. I saw it when I was in high school. I saw it in my college years. And then guess what? I had kids. I have a kid who's already graduated and off in the real world now. We watched this movie together. I have a girl who's in the middle of high school right now, and we've watched this movie. And, you know, she's gotten something out of it. So there is stuff there for every generation. And I'm always going to hold this movie a little close to my heart because it did kind of shape a little bit how I was going to go into high school and see things. And, you know, it might not have been a realistic view, but it did give me somewhat of a roadmap on how to, you know, make my way through the hallways and not be one of the major jerks. So I don't know. At the end of the day, this is a movie that I've always loved and I'm, I'm going to give it a high recommend. It's one of my favorite movies and watching it this time, I thought maybe I've watched it through the eyes of a teenager and I felt like the teenagers in the movie. And I thought maybe this time I'd, I'd be more on the side with the adults, but I still get nothing out of Vernon in this movie. He's still just an authoritarian that I don't care about. So maybe, maybe I'm still just a 15 year old watching this movie at 46, but I like it. I recommend it. If you haven't seen it, get on it. Arnie. You know, at one point, Allison says, when you grow up, your heart dies. And I think I've grown up. You know, watching this movie now, I look at it and I'm like, wow, these teenagers are full of melodrama. <laughs> it's really overwrought. I agree with what Marjorie said about Claire to a degree, but about all of them. Like, all of them act like the smallest thing is earth-shattering. Killing yourself because you can't make a lamp. All of that. And yet... I do remember high school very vividly, and it's accurate, you know? <laughs> yeah, I remember you in high school, so I, yeah, I mean, come on. There's a reason you're betting on him only getting to 31. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is accurate in how they feel, but how it's expressed, these hyperverbal, even Allison, when she finally opens her mouth, these hyperverbal kids bearing their soul on a Saturday afternoon is melodrama. 
And I do wish, as an adult, that the adult characters had a little bit more depth. You know, I get that this is a movie about kids for kids, but you could muppet it, right? You could throw the adults a bone who are taking the teenagers in since they can't go alone after 17. The movie has its problems, but it also has six really gifted actors here. Even Emilio, he gets his moments to shine. And yeah, I am including Vernon in this. Poor Carl, you know, you're fine. You don't do much. <laughs> Gets the job done. In the cut scenes, you're really kind of bad. So I feel bad for you, Carl. But the other six are really good performers. And I really like the soundtrack. It was like in constant rotation in my car from 1992 to 1997. So I'm obviously giving this film a recommend. It's a film I enjoy, but... Coming at it as an adult, I do see it has its flaws, and while I do think these issues are persisting in schools today, I'm not sure how much kids today would take to a 35-year-old melodrama to discuss how they feel. I am glad that it did open my generation's eyes a little bit. I do think in situations where I might not have gotten acceptance, people who saw this movie might have been a little bit kinder to me when I might not have deserved the kindness. But it did also open my eyes. These clicks don't end. These clicks continue into the workplace, and they may not be quite as combative, but it never ends. That's why I don't think these kids talked on Monday. But I recommend. Jacob. I think it's interesting that we're all seeing a slightly different movie because we're adults now. And like you said, Justin, I wish they did more with Vernon. He just becomes this villain. I wish they did more with him because as I get older, as my kids get older, especially as I have a kid in middle school now, as a parent, my wife and I, we get very judgy about our friends because you're of that age where like you are going to be influenced and and those decisions are going to start having major outcomes on your life. So you get very judgy. So again, I can kind of sympathize with Vernon. I wish there was more to his character. But with, with the John Hughes film, I do think it matters when you discover it. Like, I didn't discover most John Hughes films at the right age. I came to them very late. They weren't movies we watched in our house. So, like, maybe when I got older in high school or college, that's when I went back and watched some of those films. And I think it's, it's a different thing. If, if I would have watched this at 14 or whatever, I, I think this film would have been amazing. As I was a little bit older, a little bit more cynical because I got the same problem with a lot of John Hughes films. It's about pretty affluent people. I mean, even Bender gets to go to a high school with great modern art in the middle of this gigantic library. And, and you know, it's it's kind of white people struggles. Like, I want something a little more real usually. And so, yeah, I got movies like that. Eighth Grade, which is a little too real, in mid-90s. Like, th those are the real, real breakfast clubs. Like, really looking at kids around those ages and, and the struggles they go through. And it's actually very painful to watch those films, but they're very good. So, it's, it's again, as an adult, it's easy to be cynical about this film, these naive kids thinking they've pronounced such great things as they get into this group. But this is what I did as a teenager, like have these moments at coffee shops at two in the morning thinking like we were coming up with these major revelations. And maybe sometimes we did. And maybe a lot of times, actually, they're probably just the folly of youth. But we thought they were deep and that we'd come to a real understanding of ourselves. And those were neat moments. So I, I think there are things relatable, even though there's no cell phones in here or iPads or cyber bullying. I, I think even teenagers today, they watch this. Hopefully they could get something out of it. You know, I, I, they go against that message with Allison. But yeah, try to be yourself. Try to move away from that 
that pressure. That's always going to be around there. Like high school sucks. It's painful. I never want to do it again. I need therapy still to get through it. But I think there's some pretty relatable struggles here, even though, again, they keep them pretty broad for comedic effect most of the time. But yeah, I, I could give this one a hearty recommend. Someone said a minute ago that, you know, 30 years ago when this movie first came out, would people 30 years later find it relatable? When I was in high school, my dad and I sat down to watch Rebel Without a Cause, which came out in 1955, which was 30 years before this movie came out. And we watched it and we talked about it and how important that movie was to show teenagers as people. It was one of those first times that teenage struggles and teenage angst and their problems and who they are as people was developed in a movie. And so you fast forward to 30 years later and you have John Hughes movies doing that for a new generation. I remember my dad was telling me all about that. He would watch these movies when they were on later at night after we were in bed already. And he loved them because of that same struggle, which is why we watched Rebel Without a Cause. And I said to him, you know, Dad, a lot of these struggles and themes that James Dean's character is going through in this movie have been covered elsewhere since then. So this movie may have laid the groundwork for it. And so I say the same thing about The Breakfast Club. You wouldn't have things like My So-Called Life without The Breakfast Club. And that was in the 90s, the big show in the 90s. And the countless other... Jacob, you mentioned eighth grade. Absolutely. We would not have that without The Breakfast Club. Freaks and Geeks. It's every generation has movies like this and they build upon each other. I always been telling people if you like Lethal Weapon, if you like buddy cop movies, then you will love Butch Cassius and that's when I tell people about that movie who don't want to watch westerns. I'm like, well, it's not really a western. It's a western, but it's not really a western. Same kind of thing here. So you can definitely get something out of this movie. There's absolutely something there for everyone. My children are a little too young to watch this one. My, I have a middle schooler now, too, and I am in the same boat you are, Jacob. I think seeing this as a parent is also something that is an aspect that I'm bringing into this, absolutely. But having said all of that and said earlier that this was never one of my go-tos and my standbys, I can't believe how well I know this movie. Uh, maybe because people have been quoting Barry Manilow lines or the, uh, did I stutter? I still say, did I stutter? This movie is, is just ubiquitous, and it's still works for the most part. Yes, we have pointed out where it does not work. But there are so many things that even today in my mid-40s that I can feel for these guys. I have empathy for these characters. And now as an adult, in a way I didn't have when I was 15 or 25 or watching this movie before. So I absolutely give it a recommend. But I can see how kids today, those kids today, get off my lawn, would not probably run to this movie and really like it as much as the kids in 1985 or in the 80s did. But it absolutely is something here for them. Maybe dated a little bit here and there, but it is still completely relatable. Hey, the 80s are back, right? Retro's in. So I think even today's kids are going to think, if nothing else, they'll be fascinated by the fashion. Yeah, even the fashion in this movie does not look out of date by what kids are wearing today. I mean, like, that was the most shocking thing to me watching this again. It's like, whoa, nobody looks like they're wearing wacky 80s clothes. That is the difference between getting a real period movie and then doing a period piece where like you got to play up those stereotypes if I, I mean they did this with valley girl 2020 but it's an 80s movie and it just doesn't have the same vibe because it's so artificial i'm pretty sure eddie vetter and kurt cobain saw this movie and are like bender's outfit that's the thing <laughs> it's kind of stacked the deck on that but yeah okay sure don't disrespect eddie i was so worried bender was gonna lose that bandana around his leg it just keeps sliding lower and lower in his rounded shoe i'm like don't lose your bandana that's an important part of your outfit but it was lacking mall bangs and shoulder pads and neon and because you don't have cars in it very much other than they didn't have to take these kids cell phones it doesn't feel very dated to me but i grew up in this time too and hey, we have a record. This is the first film to get six recommends. Hey. <laughs> the most recommended film ever. <laughs> now playing history. It only took a thousand tries. <laughs> 
I thoroughly enjoyed taking this trip back to high school with you guys. I'm really happy that we, all seven of us, were able to come. Unlike Emilio Estevez, we're all willing to come together <laughs> and, and join in on something like this. Um, and I just want to take a quick moment to uh, thank Arnie and Marjorie for starting this amazing show that we are, I don't want to speak for the other hosts here, but I'm going to assume they agree with me, that we're all very happy to be part of. And we're running around a thousand shows now, not just because of the fans. And they're a huge part of us. And thank you, fans, for listening to us for a thousand shows. But Arnie and Marjorie are who make this work, who make this happen. And so thank you, Arnie and Marjorie, for everything you do to make Now Playing uh, what it is. And I'm looking forward to the next thousand shows. Well, thank you. Aww, I'm going to Emilio the 2000s show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's now a verb. Here we go. <laughs> You'll have to listen to our library podcast if you want to hear from her. <laughs> I totally want to do the library now, fan base in. Just review libraries around the country. Well, I, ap- I appreciate your words, Brock, but man, it is a team that brings Now Playing together. Everybody on this call is part of that team, but there are so many people uh, behind the scenes who are also vital parts of the team. I mean, I couldn't do all this editing alone. Heath, who has been with us for years and edited over 150 podcasts. Yeah, like 15% of our output is edited by Heath. He's a great guy. We couldn't do it without him. And Steven, who's been editing for us for a few years now, just tremendous. Chris did our graphics for nearly 10 years. He's a great guy and a friend and... Then Joe has come along recently to do the graphics, and Jason, who's really stepped up and helped out in so many ways, from organizing what we're doing with the live shows on Fridays every other Friday or so, to helping with the social media and the websites and everything. This is a team effort, and every single person is necessary to make a thousand episodes happen. So... Thanks to everyone, past and present, the editors who have come and gone, and everybody else, thank you so much, and thanks to the listeners, you know? Without listeners, there wouldn't be a point in doing 10 episodes, let alone a 1,000 episodes, getting to talk to you guys and everything. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to have done a 1,000 shows. Absolutely, and if we've got to do a 1,001... What better one than Real Genius this Friday? Keeping it in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. We're not done with this academic 80s theme. Yeah, after a thousand movies, and I'm like, we did some Link Letter, we did some Scorsese. God damn it, Real Genius now. Wait, you're not doing Top Secret? (laughs) No Top Secret? Maybe 2002 can be Top Secret. Okay. (laughs) But yes, that will be out for our patrons this Friday. And it's only a movie I've wanted to review since, you know, episode 100 or so so at least it's come up at least yes in half the shows real genius some fan out there do a super cut just find every reference to real genius put it together <laughs> and then next week we start a new series uh, rarely done but you know usually we're doing pickup but with no movies out let's do jack ryan starting with the hunt for red october Jack Ryan is a different Jack Ryan for so many movies. It's almost like Batman. How many times a different guy plays Jack Ryan? Yeah, we got Batflick and we'll get Bat Ryan, I guess. Or Ben <laughs> no, Ryan. Ben, ben Ryan. <laughs> Let me get it right. <laughs> Bat Ryan. That would be a better movie than what we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, before we go, I just want to do one last thing here. Hey, 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 hey! Ooh. <laughs>
not be a true 1000 show without Arnie singing. I think it had to happen. <laughs> 1000 movie reviews. I can hardly believe it's really true now. We started in a parking lot, ripping on Spider Man really stupid plot <laughs> now we've been going so long so much movie research we've all been working on a thing has pulled us apart but it is for our fans that we still talk oh yeah thank you for still now playing thank 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 but never straying. <laughs> Listeners keep us going. Oh, wow. A thousand <laughs> movies. We keep flowing. Fantastic. We couldn't do it. We can't do it without you. you. Your downloads and donations are what gives us motivation we keep going we keep going on on hey 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 No plans for an end. Movies we watch and we'll keep saying recommend. <laughs> it's you who made this all possible. Downloading and pledging. Thanks to all of my co-hosts and all the people on Facebook for all your posts. Can we do a thousand more? We will if that's what you call for. Thank you. You make this exciting. Thank, 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 thank you for still subscribing. All of the donors. All who push play. Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020. Shermer High School, Springfield, Illinois, 62704. Dear Mr. Vernon, We accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. What we did was wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. What do you care? You see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, and the most convenient definitions. You see us as a brain, an athlete. A basket case. A princess. A criminal. A hacker. A punk. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Once again, thank you to all the listeners, donors, and patrons who have made it possible for now playing to review 1,000 movies. Each year, these kids get more and more arrogant. Oh, bullshit, man. 
Come on, Vern. The kids haven't changed. You have. We hope you've enjoyed the show. All right. Great. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. We'll keep going. You want another one? Say the word. Just say the word. You want another one? Yes. You got it. You got another one right there. That's another one, pal. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, The Avengers films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You can ignore me if you try. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. What are you going to do for me, man? What, what, what would you like? Have 50 bucks? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What would I do for a million bucks? I guess it, uh, I do as little as I had to. That's boring. The idea is to like search your mind for the absolute limit. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the now playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. It's kind of a weird time, but I was just wondering um, what is going to happen to us on Monday when we're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friend. I'm not wrong, am I? Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. I don't think that from a legal standpoint, what he did can be construed as rape since I paid him. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Great, Dad! But I've got homework to do. That's all right, son. You can do it on the boat. Gee! Dear, isn't our son swell? Yes, dear. Isn't life swell? You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. You've got to be number one. Your intensity is for shit. Win! 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 You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. So it's sort of social. Demented and sad, but social, right? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. What is that? What? What is that? What is that noise? What noise? Really, sir, there was many noise. Associate produced by Jason. I'm a man of respect around here. They love me around here. I'm a swell guy, and everybody knows it. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. What's your poison? Five crafts. When do you drink vodka? Whenever. A lot. Tons. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Do I stutter? The opinions expressed on now playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm not a nymphomaniac. I'm a compulsive liar. 
Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. The next time I have to come in here, I'm cracking skulls. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I've done just about everything there is except a few things that are illegal. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. How come Andrew gets to get up? If he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. See you next Saturday. Yeah. Okay, I am recording. 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 Yep, yep. <laughs> Can we do that in harmony? Recording. 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 <laughs> Justin, criminal. A criminal. Try one more time. You, you weirdly enunciated. A criminal. <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> you really <laughs> like hit those syllables hard. I'm, I'm you're, in my you're head hooked now. on phonics. Okay, shush. Shush. A criminal. There. A criminal. A smooth criminal. <laughs> a smooth criminal. A criminal. A criminal. God damn it. A criminal. Now you've said it so many times, it sounds weird. <laughs> I was there on take two. So just close oh. Skype, close Audacity, and then we'll call you back. But everyone remain recorded. Yeah. Assuming this gets... Yeah. An athlete. Oh, I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> okay, Justin, That's all that we had at like eight hours of recording. That's all we ever get. That's our show, guys. <laughs> Justin, you want to try criminal a few more times? <laughs> Criminal-nimmin-all. Criminal-nimmin-all. You sound like a three-year-old learning to say it for the first time. Oh, that's mean, but it's kind of true. (laughs) Oh, it's going to get a whole lot meaner if this goes on much longer. I'm I'm hooked on phonics. I was kind of a floater. When my first day of school, I, I carpooled with a senior and she gave me a piece of good advice. She's like, hey, high school goes by in a flash. She's like, don't worry about trying to join in with everybody. And I thought when you said that a senior gave you some advice to the first day of school, it was going to be shank somebody the first day to get the respect. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your head down. Don't make eye contact. I heard I carpool with a senior and she gave me. And I'm like, oh my God, the first day of school? That's amazing, Justin. There must be some positive. <laughs> Okay, I just want to point out for best men trivia, the best one ever is Peter Boyle, who was young Frankenstein, the, the monster who played a grandfather in everyone's life, Raymond, Ralph Raymond. He was the best man for John Lennon's wedding to Yoko Ono. That by far is the weirdest best man pairing I've ever heard. That is completely That's weird. Off, the, off the chart and nothing to do with relevancy to this movie whatsoever. Okay, here we go. Wow. I'll go with that, though. Someday that will win you a trivia contest. I've won many trivia contests, but not with that question. <laughs>
So, I feel like I'm doing Family Feud here. <laughs> so, Stuart, Jerry, Marjorie, Justin, Arnie, Jacob, do you recommend The Breakfast Club? Stuart. <laughs> 